0: And we are live. This is Dark Journalists. Uh, It's great to be here with everyone tonight. It's already a fantastic uh, crowd there in the Ideas Room, and tonight I'm joined by the lovely Olivia.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm back.
0: She's back, (laughs) and uh, you did the right thing. You skipped uh, the tense, hardcore election episodes, and now you're back for the the deep dive, Uh, and it's perfect timing, so it's good to have you back. Your fan mail file is growing (laughs) and growing, so... Uh, It's going to be easier now. I'll tell you, um, we've got a very special episode tonight because we're coming into the 57th anniversary on Sunday of the JFK assassination. And uh, this is very important because, interestingly enough, and, um, you know, we really have to think about the synchronicity of this. President Trump, through the acting defense secretary, Christopher Miller, has uh, activated one of President Kennedy's National Security Action Memorandums, 57. Interestingly enough, it's the 57th anniversary. But the 57th um, National Security Action Memorandum that JFK left in place is part of a series from 55 56 and 57, but it's the one that really outlines getting rid of the role of the Central Intelligence Agency. And it has laid around dormant this whole time, and President Trump uh, activated it only yesterday. And we now are looking at a very unusual situation because when they activated it, they invoked President Kennedy. So we're looking at um, the real setup here of Trump looking down the nose of these intelligence agencies and separating them out the way that Kennedy wanted to do, but he didn't write his own executive order or national security action memorandum to do it. He actually use the one that was there. And that one was set in place by President Kennedy in nineteen sixty one. And shortly thereafter he fired the head of the CIA, Alan Dulles, after asking him to participate on a panel studying the role of the CIA in the disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, which Kennedy was they were attempting to trick him into a full-scale invasion of the island of Cuba. Um, because he had, he had just gotten in, and we're going to get into this. But the significance here of going across these 57 years since the assassination directly to today and having the correlation with Trump, uh, who fired his uh, Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, I'm going to get into that, too, and some of the deeper details here. And we're going to look also that there's a huge JFK assassination investigation connection with Sidney Powell. And that's the TKO uh, to start the night off. And this is really going to get very deep. So I want you to uh, strap in for this one because we are going to go into some territory that has not been explored ever. And I've been on these uh, subjects for a long, long time. And uh, some of it, you know, some of the links that we're going to create tonight here in this ex-election report are going to be uh, just off the charts. And uh, what it's going to tell us is that we're in the middle of the hugest power struggle for uh, really the future of America and the future of the world. And we're face to face with an entire uh, corrupt bureaucracy. And we have a few wild cards in the mix. Um, And some of the wild cards, like President Trump, for example, who is not part of that national security uh, establishment and the deep state establishment, although um, he has his own factions of support. Uh, he stands as a real outsider, in a sense, working with these uh, this class of the deep state. One of the interesting things that Professor Peter Del Scott put out there, early in the Trump administration, we did a series of interviews here, and he said that Trump was the latest in a series of actions by the deep state against the presidency. Now, what had happened is um, the CIA, when it, and this all comes back to the CIA, because even the executive order that Trump signed um, off on, on all this, really, and, and the thing that's been activated now, Um, It really goes back to the idea of the CIA's role, and the problem was the role, the way that it was developed and hoisted onto Harry Truman, who had just been thrown in uh, with very little notice when FDR died suddenly, and remember, Harry Truman had only been VP for three months, and his first reaction to the idea of the Central Intelligence Agency was, well, I don't want a national Gestapo, so no. And uh, I guess we could all say we wish he had stuck to that. But instead, uh, the very affluent lawyer, Alan Dulles, um, worked and worked and worked to set this up. And they got the National Security Act. Pushed through, and they got Truman to sign it. And we've been in a bind with that National Security Act ever since because one of the things it did when it created the CIA, uh, which you know the the real CIA charter kicks in in 1949. That's the expansive powers, but the National Security Act in 47 sets it all up. So, um, but what that really did, and why we're in this power struggle now, is that the 1947 National Security Act gave them clandestine powers and that is where their power developed in secret and instead of doing covert missions for the president or whatever, they just developed into their own authority. And so when they started to at a certain point, you know, rig elections and, you know, bomb bridges and do all kinds of things overseas, they brought that back here, Uh, as you can see with the recent election. Uh, Anyone who has done any election, regardless of what side you're on, whether you're on uh, Democrat or Republican or Libertarian, anyone who looks at the election can see just the wealth of voter fraud. And we can see the desperate media attempt to reprogram us back into thinking that everything's hunky-dory. This is one of the biggest steals of an election. I don't think there's ever been a bigger one. And, um, you know, you could argue the Bush-Gore one, but this one wasn't close, you know, so this is (laughs) is the nature of the thing. And it is quite remarkable to just have that after feeling. It's almost like uh, on the intuition side, people just know that there's something
1: wrong. Well, we're all animals and we know when we're under threat.
0: Yes. You know,
1: and I think that a lot of what they did is they gave people COVID to blame why they feel scared, right? Yes. As a red herring instead of feeling... This tidal wave of totalitarianism that's coming for
0: them. thats a tidal wave. I like Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, that's really what it feels like. And, you know, stealing an election is what the CIA is good at. That's that's what they've honed their skills. Uh, One of the main sort of key reasons uh, that they were created was to assist Italy to make sure the communists were kept out. And they were asked in there by the Vatican, but it turns out it had nothing to do with the communists. They just uh, wanted to make sure that they stayed in power and working with this particular government. And that's where the CIA started to work with the mafia very early on. So when you get into things later, when they're trying to work with the mafia to get Cuba back and participate uh, in the JFK assassination, the CIA using mafia hire and things of this nature, that's all... Um, cemented and created from a foundation from the 1948 Italian elections, where the CIA just rolls in there and they do the kind of most appalling stuff to overthrow the election. But then they got good at it. And, um, you know, whether it's our in Guatemala, where they would tell the opposition to go to a certain place, you know, they'd send out these false um, flyers and things saying, hey, let's have this rally and put all this stuff together. And when the people got there, they would execute them for the other side so um you know these are the types of tactics that they are known for and interestingly enough obama um who very strangely i think has a book tour going on in the middle of all this mm-hmm. it's like how did he know because uh, <laughs> well, otherwise his book tour would have looked like it does right
1: and like i said uh kamala is on the cover of l right and that had to be shot Yes. Way before. Exactly. the article written. So that's, you know, because that's what you do. You set up uh, a magazine issue m- like a month in advance. No
0: question. When I worked at various magazines, we would work on a Christmas issue in the summer. <laughs> so you're always uh, at least three or four months out. That is remarkable. And of course, they never had Melania Trump on there. Uh, is that true? Yeah. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is an interesting thing that they've really kept her kind of universally sidelined. Um In those sort of fashion journals. But um, one of the things I think is interesting about all this, and we're going to lay it out, is that we're in a situation that we have to kind of take a a snapshot moment of. It appears to me that the deep state, by grabbing the election the way that they have, have incited, or you might say forced the hand of Trump to activate something that was on the books but had lain dormant all this time. So we were looking at this and you go back and you're like, what on earth was it that President Kennedy was seeing that he put these things into place to defang the CIA and return them to their intelligence role? And interestingly enough, it was Harry Truman who very shortly after the JFK assassination in 1963, exactly a month to the day, wrote an an entire editorial in Washington Post saying, end the CIA's role, amend it or end it. So he was saying, you know, when we created this, it was to gather intelligence for the president. It wasn't to go around overthrowing different countries and to have your own ops going on and develop your own Air Force, which, by the way, they have their own Air Force. Um, you know, they are budgeted every year billions of dollars. They're incredibly influential and they have that direct pipeline. You know, people very often think of them as some kind of a military use, you know, because we we use them in situations around the world. But their actual origins come directly and they represent the interests of Wall Street. That's really where they started because Alan Dulles, when he wrote out that whole charter um of what the CIA was going to be, he was working at S&C as a lawyer. You know, the Sullivan and Cromwell highbrow Wall Street lawyer. And it was hardly, um, that's all international finance. It's It has hardly to do with military anything. So when they rolled it, and they started to use the CIA, they started to go in and do things without the military, and they developed their own kind of world plan. And then they finally got beyond the powers of Eisenhower. And he laid that message out very clearly when he left office and he sat down and he said to Kennedy, you have to get them back under the umbrella of presidential control. And uh, he gave him a lot of good advice all, all the way through. One of the things that we're looking at with JFK when he comes into office is he's the youngest president ever elected, one. But I think in a lot of ways the CIA underestimates him because he has incredible knowledge coming in. Uh, he's been a congressman since 1946 and a senator since 1952. He's been all around the world. When he was growing up, his dad was the ambassador to England. So he has that whole upbringing there. He'd gone to Harvard. He really understood the lay of the land, and uh, he had been over and visited Asia, and, you know, he he really understood the world. This was not somebody who was coming into the presidency green. Um, one of the things that was left over from the Eisenhower administration through the actions of uh, Vice President Nixon was a plan that was never approved to invade Cuba. Um, and they were going to use these Cuban exiles to do it. And that becomes the Bay of Pigs um, program. A lot of, There's a lot of misinformation in history about the Bay of Pigs. But it comes in very important tonight with what we're talking about because it allows Kennedy to see the CIA for what they are. Um, There's a lot of things, too, that come into play about the election in 1960. For example, the CIA profiled JFK. There's a full profile of his strengths and weaknesses. So they were already sizing him up and already maybe saying to themselves, what are we going to do with this person who is independently wealthy, has his own political connections, has his own intelligence connections, and has his own vision of the world where we, the CIA, as representatives of all these different international finance interests and Wall Street interests have our own version of how we're going to do things you know we're going to roll into Central America that's where the whole term banana republic comes from Um, and we're going to roll into places like Iran and you know if they try to nationalize their oil fields we're going to take over basically we're going to throw out the leader we put in and we're going to get some other guy and this is how they did it over and over again whether it was Guatemala or Iran Um, So we'd seen the CIA really making moves that were presumably in the interest of the United States, but were giving us a terrible reputation because of the lawlessness and the lack of ethics involved. And everyone had always kind of looked up to America, especially after World War II. So this was really blowing it uh, for us. And there were people inside the establishment who were really upset about this. Everyone, you're watching The Dark Journalist Show. We are on the ex-election report, and this is all about President Trump activates President Kennedy's NSAM, the National Security Action Memorandum, 57, and the CIA. It's Officially, that's what it does. It ends their influence. It returns their role, and I'm going to read it here shortly, directly to just intelligence gathering. No more clandestine ops. No more private air force. None of that. It's over. And um, that... Interesting memo had been kind of buried, and the power inside of it never exercised. So, Trump, by activating it through the newly appointed defense secretary and the undersecretary for intelligence for defense, who was also a very interesting person and invoked JFK when this came to be, I'm going to read his speech here shortly. Um, This gives us uh, an idea of where we are and where we're heading into with this, which is, this is really, um, after going through a largely fraudulent election, Trump is staring at the same forces that have been trying to remove him since he got into office. And again, whether or not you're a Trump fan, these three people, uh, the former FBI director, the former director of national intelligence, and the former CIA director under Obama, John Brennan, so that's... James Comey, James Clapper, and John Brennan. Um, These three people tried on uh, multiple occasions with the impeachment, um, with the Russian collusion hoax, all of these different things, to remove a sitting president. Regardless of anyone's feelings about Trump or if you're a Democrat or Republican, that's not the way we do business in the United States. And the CIA, again, has proved their central role in controlling American culture, and they've been doing it, and they've intruded, uh, you know, with their attack on the White House since 1963. This is how we've been dealing with it, and we've been under that. There's a continuity there, 57 years since the assassination of President Kennedy. Let's think about that for a moment. What's transpired in all that time? The CIA has grown bigger And, you know, there's only one little period in the 70s where they were under, you know, a lot of uh, growing attention from different committees trying to defang their assassination arm because it was basically they're going around assassinating leaders that they didn't agree with without political approval. And so they're very much a rogue outfit. And we have to get into where the CIA comes from and who do they serve. Right now, they're a completely extra-constitutional outfit. They have no authority to be doing the things that they're doing, especially not interfering in a national election in the United States, which it's very clear that they have.
1: Yes. Debbie McAdoo wants to know, uh, how does D.J. know this memo was invoked? There was a press conference, right?
0: Oh, well, it's very simple. The, um, the I'm going to read the new outline of what happens now in relation to special ops, which is what the memo was all about and how it excluded the CIA. Um, and the, what they did with the acting defense secretary and the undersecretary of defense is, so they don't have any authority to just come out there and say, we're going to now have special ops report to us, and not bureaucratic CIA nonsense. You're going to report directly to the acting defense secretary. There's no authority to do it. The only authority rests in the memo the three memos, 55, 56, but it's 57 that clearly delineates that the CIA is reduced to a support role. So as we go along tonight, I'm going to read uh, from the three memos, but uh, it has been activated, there's no question. And, you know, I was talking with uh, Dr. Joseph Farrell on the show, we did a couple of real uh, incredible episodes last week with uh, Dr. Farrell and Catherine Austin Fitz. But in the Farrell one, we were talking about the actions that Trump was taking after the election uh, and the staging of the election took place. And what he was doing was he was replacing defense secretaries. He was replacing cybersecurity officials. He had learned, he was looking out and he was seeing this is what has taken place. Now, one of the things that I surmised from all of this is that Esper, who was the defense secretary, and uh, who did appoint a new COG, Continuity of Government, commander back in August. It seems to me that somehow Trump got wind of the fact that while he had COVID, they were going to invoke COG because they were floating it so heavily. Nancy Pelosi was talking about it. Let me tell you how unusual that is. Um, first of all, Continuity of Government is something that was completely underwrapped and you could not discuss. As a matter of fact, it came up in a congressional session in 1987, and they immediately jumped all over, Oliver north for mentioning it, and his lawyer stopped him and said, we can't talk about this. Um, but they didn't want to talk about it because the senator who jumps up, Daniel Inouye, from Hawaii says, you can't go any further. You cannot talk about continuity of government. And the reason is that we have a separate government that's set up there, and the original idea back in Eisenhower's time was it was meant to survive a nuclear attack. You know, it was meant to uh, have a functioning government after a complete nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union back then in the 50s. So they built gigantic underground bunkers and units and government controls, and they intended to continue. Now, as time wore on, uh, you know, in the 80s, we had another big nuclear scare. But interestingly enough, the two people who came to create continuity of government were Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld, who was actually at the time a um, CEO of a pharmaceutical corporation. And, um they would eventually create Aspartame <laughs> to give you some idea what Rumsfeld was up to, but Rumsfeld had been in the government as uh, also the youngest defense secretary under Ford, so you know he he 'd been around there, but it 's very interesting to have people working on a complete continuity of government who aren 't even in the government so <laughs> what what is that all about? Uh, In the work of Professor Peter Dale Scott, you'll find that they use what they call the Doomsday Network, which is a communication network that's supposed to work after a nuclear attack. And in every major deep event that's taken place in the United States since 1963, Kennedy assassination, Watergate, Iran-Contra, 9-11, and with a lot of smaller ones in between, Those incidents are always at the hands of people who are associated with this network. Either they helped create it or they worked directly for it. For example, John Dean, in the case of Watergate, he comes forward and he gives all this information that takes Nixon down. Well, he's actually Nixon's lawyer, so he doesn't have to ever say anything because you don't have to sort of turn on your client. Um, So there's a real interesting combination there that there's something about the COG group that... Hangs together over time, and they're already using this illegal channel and underground government basically to make all these public policy changes. So when we look at COG being talked about openly, with Nancy Pelosi saying, "Hey, I got my briefing from COG," it's really strange, you know. I mean, when I have been working on it, and when I did shows on it with Professor Scott, say in 2014, 2015, we try to do a couple of shows every year. Um, You know, it was incredibly rare to hear anyone ever mention it at all. They didn't know what COG meant. And, uh, you know, it's just a small group of political, um, you know, people really dive into the details that knew anything about it at all. Uh, Although it has been reported in a 1987 um, magazine and newspaper about exactly what was going on with it. So it's, it's known but you cannot talk about it, literally. So to have it being raised in Newsweek and then introducing the first commander, and we, we commented on that and we did a show here about O'Shaughnessy when he came out. But a weird thing happened with O'Shaughnessy, who was the NORAD slash COG, uh, North American Aerospace Commander, who's the combatant commander of the United States. So, you know, if COVID took over, this guy would have taken over. And they were doing all these weird things where he was showing up on boats and, You know, combatant commanders are some of the most unknown people in history. You're never supposed to even know their names, really. (laughs) Just like these CIA directors who come out and work for MSNBC. I mean, there's something very strange going on. Um, But long story short, uh, when we look at what they were doing with COG, Esper, who was the defense secretary under Trump, came forward and he had O'Shaughnessy resign. O'Shaughnessy was only 54 years old. So it's an unusual resignation. Those guys, it's probably 10 or 15 more years in that position. And his comment was something like, oh, it'll be nice to get new, more time with my family. You know, I just didn't say, I mean, it was in the middle of this crisis and everything. It was very unusual. And Esper uh, put in General Van Herk who we have covered on this program. But I believe that there was a plan to have Van Herc activate the COG while Trump was sick with COVID. I think this is... What they had planned, if this had taken place, and so by the time we get to the week after the election, and Trump is doing all these, you know, dumping major officials, he fired Esper on, on Twitter, literally. Uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> that's, that's a heck that's of a great. Way to go. Uh, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think when we look at Trump and him doing that, it's a major action because you figure either he expects to win and he's getting rid of them. Or he knows that they have kind of turned these tables and that somehow Esper was associated with the COG action. That, I think, is very important for us to keep in mind as we go along here, because um, the person who replaced Esper is undersecretary. He's the acting defense secretary, and that is Christopher Miller. This is somebody who actually saw combat in Iraq, and he saw combat when we first took over Afghanistan, and there he is, and this is what um, he came forward and did when he activated the JFK memo, and we have to get into this national security action memo. I'm going to do this in reverse. I'm going to show you what they did, and then I'm going to show you what the authority was in the JFK memo that they had to do it. Um, so the headline here is, acting defense secretary orders top special ops civilian to report directly to him. That is the huge change because it moves special ops directly to the defense secretary. Now, um, special ops and clandestine operations go through the Central Intelligence Agency, and they have a bureaucratic wing which gives approval for different types of things. He just cut off the channel for them to do that, and I'm going to get into how he's doing this. Um, and the statement here at DOD. Uh, I'm first going to get into some of these personnel changes. Let me read this. This is actually from defense.gov, so it's from their own uh, website. And this is DOD statement on personnel changes at the Pentagon. Okay, this is for November 9th, so we're going back a week or so. As announced yesterday, November 9th, President Trump has designated the National Counterterrorism Center Director, Chris Miller, as Acting Secretary of Defense. So he's installed instead of Esper, who gets unceremoniously dumped uh, right after the initial version of the election, which, by the way, is still not is completely undecided at this point, regardless of how the the media is calling it, because the media, they have doubled down to such a position that there's no way they can look at this fairly anymore. So they're just going for broke and going for crazy. (laughs) Uh, They're middle-aged crazy, so I like to say. (laughs) Today, acting under Secretary of Defense for Policy, Dr. James Anderson, under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, Joseph Kernan, and Chief of Staff to the Secretary of Defense, Jen Stewart, submitted letters of resignation. Okay, so they're all gone. That whole block is gone, the Esper block. Um, that's very interesting, and I could get into them, but I'm going to get to the good stuff. So, Director Chris Miller, as the Acting Secretary of Defense, this is now um, from today, took over those functions and responsibilities midday, and De- Deputy Secretary of Defense David Norquist remains in his position and continues to execute his responsibilities. So he survived this purge that's going on. Today, acting under Secretary of defense for policy. Um, right, and they all resigned. Dr. Anderson submitted his letter of resignation to the president this morning, effective today. Okay, now, in the midst of all this, somebody rose, and his name is General Tata, which I think we need to keep an eye on Tata. Tata's a very unusual person, and he's part of this big switchover that's happening. But he is somebody who said that Brennan and Clapper should be tried as traitors. Remember that because Brennan being the CIA director under Obama for this general to be saying we should try him as a traitors is quite remarkable. But he's now being elevated in the Defense Department by Trump and there's a reason for that. Um, so Acting Secretary of Defense Miller issued the following statement on these personnel changes. I want to thank Dr. Anderson, Admiral Kernan, and Jen Stewart for their service to the nation and the department. And then goes on with the niceties there. Okay, so now you've completed the purge of these officials who were obviously involved in either a COG uh, aspect or were involved somehow in the election hijinks because they're quite suddenly purged out of nowhere. Now, let's go to the next piece here, how it was all done. This is National Security Action Memorandum 57. And that's Christopher Miller. And it's the responsibility for paramilitary operations. That is, who can run clandestine paramilitary ops? And John F. Kennedy signed it. And we're going to get into what the memo was here. Keeping in mind that Brennan and Clapper now have a new enemy at the Defense Department, and it's General Tata. So you can imagine that they're definitely a little bit nervous, but they were probably nervous when the Russian hoax op failed also. Uh, So many of those things now, and there are people who've gone after Crossfire Hurricane and done the deep dive, um, you know, like Alexander Bruce at Forbidden Knowledge TV, for example, done a real deep dive on all of those, like Peter Strzok and all these different things. And that's been played out in public a lot. And although we'll reference it here, what we really want to know is what's going on with Trump's personnel changes in activating the National Security Action Memorandum that JFK left on the books. I can tell you this is absolutely explosive. And I don't, you know, it's one of those things that's going to have to sink in the enormity of the action. Um, and the invoking of JFK just as they're throwing these people out and locking out the CIA from clandestine operations. This is really quite unusual, and it has not been done since President Kennedy, and he was not able to get it activated because it was blocked, uh, essentially, and he wound up firing the CIA director over the situation. Um, Although we know that Dulles (laughs) had it coming in a variety of ways. Now, what we're going to do also as we get along tonight, and I want to give a little highlight here, is we're going to be looking at Sydney Powell. And uh, she is such a lead voice for Trump right now. And she's saying, look, Dominion software is this software. It was used by communist countries like Venezuela. China was funding it in the hot zone directly there in Cuba. And this is how we got this. They came in And they've been controlling our elections. And this is the hugest scandal of the 21st century. Now, it's a major claim. And um, what I want to do, first of all, is tell you that Sidney Powell is someone who is an extraordinary uh, legal force. If you go into her past background, you will see over 70 major cases overturned by Powell that were either federal cases or at the Supreme Court level. This is not somebody who is, you know, a run-of-the-mill lawyer. And taking on the Flynn case, as you know, uh, with all of the kind of national attention on that case and the incredible disinformation fed by the war machine, MSNBC, you know, they have all the Russian collusion craziness, (laughs) conspiracy nonsense. And they had Rachel Maddow there sitting there making, you know, $10 million a minute um, and basically just lying, you know, making up lies. So much so that people who were on the left, uh, like Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald, were looking at this and saying, we can't be a part of this sham.
1: Sounds like you almost said something else.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know what was going on. They both went over and they write for Substack now. They're, you know... um, Greenwald had The Intercept, which he started, and they censored him on his own mm-hmm. website. It's ridiculous. Uh, Taibbi was with Rolling Stone, but, you know, they were doing the same thing. And they wanted the Russia thing, you know, anything to take down Trump. And regardless of, again, any position that you want to take on the political spectrum, to take down Trump just because you can isn't a good enough reason. Sorry. <laughs> and uh, so they on the left, and this is very important because we need voices in the middle, on the right, and the left, whatever you want to call them, it does not matter. All we care about is following the Constitution and getting the truth out on a journalistic level for this. That's all we care about. You can sit there and complain all day about President Trump or say that, you know, whatever you want about Kamala Harris, it doesn't matter. What we want is the truth. We want to find out how the election was rigged. We want to find out who was behind it. It's very obvious. And we want to see what are the forces going on after the fact. And if Trump is activating National Security Action Memorandum 57, just before the 57th anniversary of the JFK assassination, and it has never been invoked by any president before, it's a huge bombshell. And I mean a bombshell off the charts.
1: Yes. Debbie McAdoo again was asking, why haven't any prior presidents ever invoked this order?
0: Well, they were terrified, first of all, even in Kennedy's era, they were terrified on the Joint chief staff level to do it, because it would defang the CIA, but the CIA controls, I mean, as I said, they have their own air force. Who do you think is doing all the droning? Why did they call John Brennan the drone king when he was in the Middle East and Afghanistan? He was the CIA director. Why is he the drone king? Because he can command any activity while he's over there, because he has his own air force. Um, And this is the nature of the problem with the CIA. The CIA were not built for clandestine operations at all. They were meant to go in, spy on other countries, and give the information back to President Truman, actually. And it's interesting, uh, if you go back, you can see that relationship there with Truman and Kennedy. And Kennedy going directly to Eisenhower and to Truman and saying, what is it with the CIA? What's going on here? They're running their own show, and I'm giving them orders, and they're not following my orders in Vietnam and in other places. And in Cuba, they're running their own operations. And uh, you know, right when he got in, they tried to dog him into this ridiculous invasion of Cuba plan, which was really cowboy diplomacy, uh, you know, and very dangerous, reckless action. And Kennedy took a very sound approach. Even when he found out there were missiles in Cuba, over those thirteen days, he didn't fly in you know, sorties and bomb the heck out of them. And it's a good thing because they had nuclear missiles there that they were had permission to launch. So that would have been the first nuclear exchange in history. So President Kennedy saved the world from that by taking it very carefully and not listening to those voices in the CIA and in uh, the Pentagon who were just wanted to go into Cuba and say, we're going to take those missiles out. Kennedy, knowing the situation, created a blockade and the blockade what it did is it gave the Soviets the chance to back down and it was totally crucial for them to be able to do that they could still claim hey you know we saved the world by doing this you know that it gave them some room for maneuver as they say now when we look at this and um, we see the situation we're in now as I said the the Central Intelligence Agency has grown and it has grown in leaps and bounds in its powers, it has all this power uh, in terms of programming the media that we get now. So when you are looking at somebody like Chuck Todd, and you're like, why is Chuck Todd sitting there and not investigating the election fraud? Why, why would somebody like that, who was selected by Tim Rosser who did give, give a damn about issues uh, and who died prematurely, Um, You know, so you have this guy, Chuck Todd, who does meet the press and works for NBC. And you think to yourself, why wouldn't a journalist care about this? Because if you do, I mean, of course, you're out. But still, you know, aren't, aren't there journalists who care, who are willing to get fired for their positions? And then so I was looking at him, listening to his report, and he was talking about the president's lawyers team press conference and the incredible charges that they were making about Dominion software and the incredible um, implications of the idea that the software had flipped votes, which we know is very possible, and which had been used by the CIA and other countries. And here he was talking about how uh, Rudy Giuliani looked like some crazy uncle, and he kept saying, crazy uncle, crazy uncle, and that was it. It was like all you wanted was some buzz tags so Twitter could write up a little sideline that said, oh, Todd calls Giuliani, crazy uncle. you know. So um, in fact, if you go over the press conference, they laid out exactly what they're going to do and that the legal team that they have is dynamic, which is why you see the Biden-Harris team now going to bat and saying, we need a legal fund to defend against these guys because they're going to take away our great victory. Well, it's pretty fascinating because first of all, if you were so damn confident, why on earth would you think that the election could be taken from you? I mean, after all, you're president elect according to all your people doesn't add up. First of all, he's not president elect because you need to have the vote total certified before they can call you president elect. Second of all, that big sign behind Biden that says office of president elect, there is no office of president elect. It doesn't exist in the federal government. He just made that up. So, um, you know, it's like putting a sign behind you that says king of the world. It's nice, but it doesn't mean anything. Just like the media saying AP called Georgia for Biden doesn't mean anything, that doesn't change the score of the actual vote totals. What it means is that the media has projected it. Now they do have a big back and forth going on, but I'm going to actually dive into this election thing for a minute with Georgia, because I want us all to kind of get a flavor of what's going on here. In this true map, which is hashtag true map on Twitter if you want to follow the reporting, um, The actual electoral vote totals are Trump 268 to Biden 237. That's where the actual votes stand. And this is extraordinary because they're holding up Biden at 306 to Trump 232. And the problem is that the states that they're giving Biden have cases of voter fraud. And so their elections could be thrown out. And particularly in Pennsylvania, where Trump had a lead of 800,000 votes, that's what they call an insurmountable uh, total lead that he had when we all, you know, went to sleep and they stopped counting on Tuesday. And when we woke up, Biden was ahead by a million votes. doesn't happen that way. Uh, too many states stopped counting. What is that all about? When? Since when do you stop counting? It doesn't happen. I mean, if you look through the history of all these elections, even really tight ones, you know, It does not happen that way, and there's no good excuse like, oh, well, COVID did it, so everything changes. They didn't even give Trump North Carolina, which he was ahead by 100,000 votes the whole time, but they did project that uh, Biden would win Arizona even though only 2% of the vote was in, and it's a red state since 1996. So do you think that Obama, with all of his popularity and all the incredible resources and appearances and everything else he did in book tours, Are you telling me that Obama couldn't do something that Biden could do by not going anywhere, just hanging out and doing Zoom stuff where he would flub his words? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, this is just how they arranged it because they realized on the map it was too risky. So they gave themselves this weird extra 11 electoral votes. The actual totals, regardless of which stripe (laughs) you you come down, Democrat or Republican, the actual totals were probably five to ten points in Trump's favor. And so they did a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes shenanigans in order to change the result to get them where they are. So the TrueMap gives us an idea of what they've been doing. And when we look at it, and we look at some of the states in Georgia, when they were doing the recount, they found there was a slate of votes that said 10,000 and some for Biden and 13 for Trump. And then they realized, oh, no, 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 no. Actually, it's a thousand something to 13 for Trump. We need to take these 9,636 votes away from Biden as part of the total. And Biden's only supposed to be leading by 11,000 votes in Georgia. So if you take 96,36 away, he'll only have about a thousand vote lead. So you can see you find any more shenanigans like that, and it's game over because it was heavily favored to go for Trump. So How do you get around that? And How do you get around the look and the suspicion of it? Well, it's very simple. The uh, person who runs the elections, the elector in Georgia, and that whole Secretary of State apparatus, they said, well, this is actually a recount to find a new winner. We're not actually going to change the totals based on this. So even if it's like within one vote, and we show that Biden is winning by one vote over Trump, we're still going to keep that original total that we had of Biden leading by 12,000 before the recount. You realize how absurd that is in terms of getting to the truth. And uh, here's another thing when they go around certifying these things. Because of the closeness of that election, even with the fraud, President Trump can now request an automated recount of the state. You might say, but Georgia just had a recount. I just, I've heard them talking all about it. Uh, Oddly enough, that was an audit, it was not a recount of the state. (laughs) And the automated recount is something now that Trump can ask and they will take another five days to do. Now there's all kinds of issues and the problem isn't so much in counting the votes that are going on down there in Georgia, it is figuring out where the fraud comes from. And that's the part that they're not going into. So there's a whole uh, legal back and forth in relation to these states. In Pennsylvania, that case is going to go into the Supreme Court. So when I show on the true map that Trump has Pennsylvania, for example, you might look at it and say, well, doesn't Biden have Pennsylvania? And the answer is no. The New York Times says that Biden has Pennsylvania. That doesn't mean anything. You know, what matters is, one of the elections sealed and the electors put their names on it and it goes before Congress. That's how you complete an election. In the meantime, you might not realize this, but Hillary Clinton sued the Trump administration and all these different states during the last election, trying to get different results from the different states. That's how it goes, you know? And um, so this whole thing in the media, this whole insanity, like, oh no, he's trying to overturn the election. It's a You know, he's sacrificing democracy. None of it is true. They're just afraid that the fraud is going to get found out. (laughs) Everyone, you're watching The Dark Journalist Show. We're off to an incredible start here. It's a great crowd tonight. And I have got some incredible things uh, to tell you about National Security Action Memorandum 57 left by President Kennedy to be activated to defang and essentially end the reign of the CIA. Uh, This is a very important order that was left on the books and that Trump got activated uh, in the last couple of days. And it is such a shockwave. You know, I think it's the election that is taking the center stage. But when this thing is really well known, what exactly what's taken place, and they've got the ceremony, it's already on the record. It's not even something that we have to speculate about. It's been done. It's already been done. I want to remind you, uh, with all the social media shutdowns that we've been seeing, to go to darkjournalist.com and sign up for the newsletter there. That's a free newsletter. It just keeps you informed of the different things we have going on. And I also want to tell you that in the second part of the program here, we're going to be taking your questions because, thank God, we have Olivia Mm -hmm. back. And um, so ask them all in caps, and Olivia will put them together, and we'll kind of tackle that part of it. Uh, how's it going out there?
1: It's going great. It's very fast, very intense. I do have a question from yes. David Tormina. Uh-huh. DJ, when BLM says they, quote, won the election for Biden, does that mean they rigged Georgia for him?
0: Well, uh, I think there are a number of factors going into these states. I will say this, that the in Arizona, the secretary of state there who certified the election she was somebody who had promoted BLM and was close to the organization. Arizona is a really, it's kind of the weirdest case of the entire election because uh, it always, since 1996, the last person who won it was Clinton in 96. So it's 25 years ago, and who was a Democrat. The Republicans always win there. And the demographics and such, look, Arizona is a border state. And one of the things that border states are freaked out about are drugs and illegal immigrants coming across the border uh, because it makes their lives miserable. And we all know that Trump, whether you agree with the position or not, is absolutely hardcore about the wall and um, immigration you know, being legal and all the rest. So he wouldn't find an advantage for Biden. The issues weren't there for him. So it's one of the weirdest things that they did and it falls this whole strange activity of Fox News calling it. Look, Fox News called Arizona before anybody. All right. Fox News called it and The New York Times didn't. The New York Times waited eight days to call it for Biden. And that's just a call. Again, it's not binding. It's just their estimation. It's one sixth of one percent of the vote. Um, But Arizona doesn't have automatic recounts. Now you have the Arizona governor saying, "I, I don't want to certify this election until all the legal cases are done. And um, so this is all very interesting, what's happening there. Arizona and Nevada show incredible signs of fraud. Georgia and Pennsylvania show signs of fraud. Michigan uh, Michigan and Wisconsin, Michigan, I kind of like that one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those two together, it's fascinating because at the same point in the evening, they both had this vertical, you know, we've seen that wonderful graph everywhere and that's gonna be what Biden would walk around with you know, around his neck for the next four years, which is this big fraud vertical jump. Um, so the people who are wanting to do this, they were saying, we're going to go for it no matter what, and it doesn't matter. And this is a very CIA thing. And they're like, you know, it's interesting with the CIA because they believe in a very high risk, you know, like shock and awe in Iraq, for example. This type of thinking is where they come from. So this is shock and awe on the voting level. Covid is shocking, and so much of this, you know, the CIA is very close to the pharma cartel. They're very close to the oil cartel. They're very close to Wall Street. So we're finding them over and over again in our face, and they are rigging elections. They are engaging in propaganda. They are interfering, and they're they're trying to spy on American citizens. For example, Trump when he was running for office. He's a private citizen. He's actually somebody trying to attain to the presidency. And um, so we know that they were spying on him. So that means that they spy on any of us at any time, and it's an outrage. Look, the Central Intelligence Agency is a problem for the world and a problem for America, and Kennedy saw it, and this is why he had National Security Action Memorandum 57 on the books. If you go 55, 56, and 57, I'm going to go through them chapter and verse tonight, we're gonna know exactly why he was doing that. And we're gonna see that they should have taken care of the problem then, but now 57 years later, after the Central Intelligence Agency killed him, we are still looking at the same problem. You're gonna be faced with the same problem, whether it's the COVID dictatorship, whether it's vote rigging or whatever, until we get to the idea that there's covert power in the deep state operating through the Central Intelligence Agency and their associated contractors. This is a very key, I think, crucial point and something that I think we all need to get together on. Yes. Would you
1: say that everything we're seeing now is a cancer that has metastasized and has taken over? Oh, there's no question. Well, really, it's global at this point.
0: Well, it's interesting. It's a good point, actually. If we go back to Kennedy firing Alan Dulles. Now... Kennedy, after Dulles tried to fake him out into an all-out invasion of Cuba and Kennedy refused to do it and the CIA was shocked because they figured he'll trust our experience. But Kennedy called Dulles into his office and he said, look, this is America. If this was England, I'd have to go. But because this is America, you have to go. Meaning that In this system of government, the Constitution holds and the president is the one who can make a mistake and survive, and the Central Intelligence Agency was the one who had to take a walk here. Um, In the UK, apparently, it would be the leader who would take responsibility for it. What's crucial when we think about Kennedy getting rid of Dulles, and so many people have done that work of looking at uh, Dulles and the relationship and the things that he built with his brother and the Dulles Brothers and the Devil's Chessboard and all this kind of thing. It's very well known that people who have looked at this that um, the kind of tactics that they would use are entirely un-American by any stretch of the imagination. And those countries that were exploited, um, you know, it's interesting because we got a foothold in these different countries. But if you read books like Blowback, And you can see all the terrible things that came about and back at us as a result of this. You can see it's not in our interest. It's a very small group that runs with the CIA, but they're incredibly powerful. And uh, Central Intelligence Agency, they were created in an intelligence role for spying purposes, essentially. That's all they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to rig elections. They're not supposed to blow up trains. They're not supposed to cause convenient plane crashes and all these other things. So we're standing face to face there with something in America. Other countries have this problem too. I mean you wouldn't think that walking around in Russia is exactly free, but I'm talking about America here. you know China is not free at all. you know um, their system is one of the most repressive. and other countries you know in the UK with mi5 and mi6, their intelligence agencies are out of bounds also. This is a global problem. But the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, I think, in our system, they're the ones that don't fit the most because this is a free country. It's, it has a constitution that doesn't allow for these types of powers. That's entirely extra constitutional. There is there's no precedent for the Central Intelligence Agency, for the powers that they claimed for themselves. They have the ability uh, to develop secret networks of finance, secret networks of weapons secret alliances, and we have to hope in the government that they do that in our interest. But as we can see, on the vote side, when the voters elect someone on the populist side and the CIA doesn't like it because they represent the globalist interests, then they're willing to do anything, including run their puppies in the media to take down the duly elected president of the United States. That's a really big problem. So Kennedy saw this then, and that's what we're going to get into tonight, and maybe it's amazing, but that echo, the incredible, the intuition, the advice, whatever it was that had Trump activate this order is just off the charts. And Let me tell you, from knowing it, I was absolutely shocked when I saw it taking place. Uh, so let's get into it a little bit here. What else you got there? I've got some
1: great questions. Sure. So Shasha Kila wants to know, how would Trump actually enforce the activation of 57
0: Um, Well, the thing is that it now has been activated. So, therefore, when a situation requires it, that is a situation that would normally go through a bureaucratic channel to the CIA, that doesn't happen anymore. Now, supposedly, we're going to see more heads roll in relation to CIA, like CIA leader uh, Haspel. And she was always a strange choice. My Trump went for her. I have no idea. I think it was bad advice, maybe Kushner style advice that, hey, if you have a female leader of the CIA, you can do it. So Gina Haspel was associated with um, the torture that took place under the Bush administration. She has the nickname Bloody Gina for that reason. And, um, you know, there were films and things of the methods that she used, which were destroyed during that whole purge of the CIA coming up and the whole torture scandal that took place. So um, you have a lot of people in the leadership at Central Intelligence Agency who um, are just bad news. And so, you know, this is the situation, the nature of the situation as we have it. It's entrenched power. So it needs to be done in a very systematic fashion. For example, one of the great things I think that could happen is that all of the central intelligence agents and assets should be forced to uh, swear an allegiance to the Constitution and do it in public. Um, And for those clandestine agents, they can do it to their superiors. But this is a very crucial thing. They are so out of bounds right now. They're so outside of the law, and they've gotten away with it. And they've been, you know, throwing sugar candy at the media. And the media, you know, not only is it a puppet um, for the Council of Foreign Relations and these types of things, because they're a corporate media, but, um, you know, they get – if you are a journalist and you want to do something international, if you wanted to go to Yemen or something and get the story, um, you can't get any of those stories without the CIA. So – They make you or break you when it comes to regular journalism. It's very hard to get around. So they have that kind of power that they swing. And so by exposing that and their links with, you know, we see this over and over again, sources say, (laughs) this is something that Professor Scott likes to point out, which is the sources in those cases of the Central Intelligence Agency. And, um, you know, this is not to say that there's never been good agents and people who have gone through the CIA in order to make a difference they have but the problem is institutionally the structure it was the word that you used actually metastasized Mm -hmm. into this sprawling structure and that's why you get freaks like John Brennan he was the drone king Uh, why do they call him the drone king because if they suspected there was somebody that they were looking for in Afghanistan they would bomb the whole wedding of 50 people in order to get that one guy um, that's the kind of thing that not only is incredibly unethical, but it it will earn you unethical. enemies, for, <laughs> yeah, highly unethical, mm-hmm. uh, but it will earn you enemies for generations. And, um, so this is the type of person that you're dealing with. And, you know, I de- <laughs> on this program, we deal a lot with, you know, unusual subjects like the UFO subject. And that was so funny when uh, Tucker Carlson After doing this very weird segment on Sidney Powell and saying oh she doesn't you know she doesn't have anything and Really, you know a lot of people came to me and they were surprised and there was so much blowback on um, Him for this, but here's the funny thing he works for the man (laughs) You know what I mean? Like you work for Fox News That's what you get at a certain point They're gonna tell you to heal and you're gonna do it or you're fired you're out of there And, um, you know, and I thought it was so funny when Tucker Carlson was giving his explanation and he was like, look, we'll cover anything. We'll even cover UFOs on this show. I'm like, you guys just don't get it. You know, it's a market share thing for you guys. Right. Hey, look, we'll cover these wild issues that we don't understand. But, hey, if we cover them, you know, we'll get the ratings and uh, they don't understand how important the subjects are. We go after the UFO file. It has to do with the geopolitical structure that we're looking at in America. You know, it's talking about advanced technology. You're talking about the CIA. So my point was TTSA, the To the Stars Academy, their lead guy, their lead whistleblower, this Luis Elizondo, who claims to have all this UFO info and stuff. Who did he work for? He worked for James Clapper, the head of the DNI. Who's the other guy he worked for? John Brennan. So just in this world of people who understand the UFO thing, why on earth would any UFO researcher want to deal with UFO disinformation artists like that?
1: Low standards. Yeah,
0: it's pretty bad. (laughs) I mean, you know, uh, they don't have a reputation for truth. Let's put it that way. Everyone, you're watching The Dark Journalist Show. We are zeroing in now Sunday on the 57th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. Uh, It was never explained by the media, they covered it up. The government covered it up, and researchers have really drilled down and figured these things out. And those researchers, like Professor Peter Dale Scott, like the late Jim Mars, they gave us a foundation to understand the egregious abuse of power on the side of leadership. And so that here we are. And I I always say with Kennedy's work, the reason that he was removed was because. His impact was global, and I go back to this speech that Mikhail Gorbachev, of all people, gave when he went to visit the Texas School Book Depository and gave a speech, and he said, you know, I'll tell you, it's interesting, I'm still studying President Kennedy's vision for the future, and when you really study it, you understand the mystery of his death. Think of that. This is quite remarkable, but Kennedy looked at the world, he had the training, he understood how governments worked, And he didn't need he wasn't in anybody's pocket because he was independently wealthy so he was looking at the situation of the world and how it could move forward and become free and independent and you know how we could do things like touch the face of the moon and all the rest so he really inspired a generation there and they couldn't have that because in their minds were the clandestine wars the vietnams and all the different things that they wanted to do and that kind of idealism would have completely destroyed their plans.
1: Can I ask you a question?
0: Yes, please. Gerard
1: McGuire uh-huh. says, Is this action on 57 a prelude to Trump releasing the JFK files that would surely out-elements of the CIA involved in the assassination? This is the question everybody has.
0: This is it. Look, uh, MSAM 57 and activating it in order to defang the CIA, you know, they... Uh, JFK put it in place to end the CIA ultimately, but initially what it does is it just reduces them. It actually says in the memo that it reduces them to a support role for doing what they're required to do, which is gather intelligence. So um, that statute was there, and it was just hanging out. There weren't any presidents along the way who had activated it. The files that the CIA holds in the JFK assassination Although I don't think you'll find any smoking guns in those files, of course, because they got rid of anything important. However, there's too many researchers with too many dots. And if there are things in those files that just open up the story about one person or one piece of this, then their whole house of cards in relation to that would fall. Now, look, that's a 57-year-old secret. It is the secret at the heart of the American empire. The Kennedy assassination is a complete... Uh, cover up, and it's a complete fraud. And the you know the understanding on people's uh, deep in people's psyche is that Kennedy was killed by the establishment, and then they covered it up. So uh, he was having this war with the CIA, and what were the CIA good at? They were good at assassinations. And you know, other people they've raised things like, well, you know, the mafia or Cubans or whatever. Look, the mafia is on a a totally different rung than the CIA. The CIA calls up the mafia to to do jobs. You know, the CIA is the controlling aspect. You can't have the mafia roll in, you know, you have the Secret Service and the CIA, you wouldn't have the ability as mafia to go in and assassinate the president. It doesn't work that way, because then you would have to get away with it and not be prosecuted. So you need the government apparatus in order to do that. And um, so many researchers You know, the the types of lies that the CIA has told about the JFK assassination are crucial, as Americans, you know, that was an American president of ours that was removed in the third year of his term uh, who had reduced nuclear tensions. Uh, You know, he created the test missile ban. I mean, you know, the nuclear test ban treaty is something that changed the world because it stopped us from going over that nuclear cliff. There's so many things that the Kennedys did. And, of course, a few years later, uh, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated also. So these are the kind of the sins hanging out in the background there. What Trump did is he took the hypocrisy of the action of the election as kind of a reason for him to say, you know what? I'm going to activate this statute because it's going to limit your powers. And it's kind of striking back at them, and it's also a warning shot across the bow. I've always felt that he should release the records of the CIA uh, records. The thing is, you know, we did a program now three years ago live with HBO Vice, right in my studio here, and we were waiting for this incredible uh, drop of records. Uh-huh. And it was October 26, 2017. And it went on that night, it went on, it went on. And then finally they said, you know what? The CIA came into my office and I can release some of these things, but this other stuff can't be released until 2021. And then they're going to look at it again. And um, this is the weird thing. The CIA for you know, the majority of the time that Trump was in there is basically trying to get rid of them and doing all these different things. The best way, and someone should have given this advice to Trump, to one, embarrass the agency, but also to expose them and lower their power from this kind of incredible witch hunt that they were doing, would have been to release the records then. Now it's the perfect opportunity. There's no question about it. Um, And I think that Trump has been doing a lot of things since the election went down. Yes.
1: So Ted Brenneman says, if Trump doesn't get back in office, will he release the JFK files as a big middle finger to the swamp before he leaves? (laughs)
0: Look, you know it's interesting. Do you remember when a lot of people were like, "Oh, well, Trump's just waiting till W, you know, uh, George H.W. Bush dies, and then he'll do it." You know, it's it didn't work out that way. So you don't know what's going on there, but it's a major card on his part, and the signal of activating this is like the signal that the whole thing is going to come out. So he's basically, in my opinion, Trump is looking across the table and saying, "If you're willing to completely screw me after." I won the election. you're willing to use fraud to do it. And, um, you know, I also see different cases being opened against, of all people, Ivanka. Uh, they They have a tax case against Ivanka now. Here's another thing about that, which is Ivanka, they've also been saving a lot of like media ridicule in the past few days. I think that they're concerned about the rise of Ivanka Trump also, because that's somebody who's very political savvy and has... A lot of those skills and networks behind her so they want to make sure as they're trying to push trump to the side that she doesn't rise out of the ashes uh so that's something that we need to watch and i would say that that's a piece that you're going to see more of because they're going to try to sort of intimidate trump out of his position which is basically trump in poker he's looking across the table and he's saying i won the election you know, And if you are intent on doing this, I'm going to make it very difficult for you. And the JFK part is saying, you know what, your relationship, the CIA's relationship to the national security apparatus structure is artificial because, in fact, Kennedy demoted you to a support role a long time ago, but nobody ever activated the national security action memorandum. I just did. So that's huge. But that's why you couldn't have Esper in there, because Esper would have never done it. Miller would, because Miller is one of these guys. Yes.
1: We have someone who, is, um, who says there's no fraud and Trump lost, and it's just very simple. Yeah. So I wanted to know if you would like to address that.
0: Well, I mean, you've probably been watching a little too much CNN and New York Times. The thing is, you can see very clearly that in the reports, and in the reports that I've done and so many other people have done, for example, that there are all sorts of unusual things. For example, Trump leading in all of these different states, and then they stop counting, and then voila, these magic ballots, what they called mystery ballots at first, start showing up. So the point is to get to the truth. If you like the idea that Biden won, that's okay, and maybe you're willing to condone fraud, maybe not. That's the question that you need to ask yourself. The trick is, who won? And, you and have how do s- we
1: know? How can we be sure as American citizens? That's yeah. important.
0: Sure. And verification. Verification, absolutely. No, no. Do you know how dangerous it is for you to ask that question?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, it's undermining our democracy somehow.
0: <laughs> Everyone, you're watching the dark journalist X election special. Whew, we're going deep into it now. And it's good to ask questions like that. I'm actually happy to get questions like that. Um, but the point is that you, you have to remember also that, you know, so many things in America and in the world are based on lies now, because a very small group has control over the media, and they have control over industry, and they have control over corporations. So um, getting to the truth, and I can tell you as a dark journalist, getting at this truth is very difficult, and they make it difficult, and they try to program as many people to talk you out of the truth along the way the only there is a way to verifiably get to the bottom line in relation to the twenty twenty election. The way that you would do it is one you would go into how did all those votes show up out of nowhere when people stopped counting? Who recommended they stop counting? You'd do an investigation. This is a massive fraud case. look. We've never had in America this level of voter fraud. There is always voter fraud. Even the New York Times warned in 2017 and 2018 about the Dominion systems and the software flipping elections, they did it themselves. So now they're saying Trump is the sore loser because he's calling out the fraud. We can't have fraudulent, you you can't have a society and have fraudulent elections You know, fraudulent medical emergencies, uh, governors taking dictatorial powers, you know, groups that are funded by China pretending to be minority groups burning down cities. You can't have it. it. It won't work. The society won't work. And what we're trying to do is expose that so people can see it and decide, hey, these are the things that we need to move out of our society and get to the truth. And it's always been, look. We've been looking at this struggle for a long time, but it's particularly dangerous now because, as Catherine Austin Fitz said on my program, we're looking at a worldwide dictatorship and they now have the technology to do it. Remember, the only reason they gave up slavery is because they couldn't keep track of their merchandise. So they seem to solve that problem now with the electronic digital tattoo in a vaccine format. And it just so happens they're going to start requiring those because, you know, you have to prove you don't have COVID or whatever it is. Um, you know, these, this is the nature of the situation we find ourselves in, and what we need to do is cut through it all and get to who's behind it pulling those strings. And I'll tell you, the Davos crowd is showing up over and over again, and this is the nature of the thing. Right,
1: and if they're so certain, so confident that Biden won fairly, and there's no widespread fraud, then what what's oh, yeah. the fear? They should, like,
0: they should like investigation. They're supposed to be media companies, but they're afraid because it's their guy, and they participated in the fraud, most of them. Everyone, you're watching The Dark Journalist Show. Um, we're going to be doing now, I'm going to be going into the memos uh, that JFK left that were activated by Trump, and I'm going to read the activation here, and we're also going to talk about the very interesting role of the acting undersecretary of defense, Ezra Cohen Watnick a very interesting guy whose background suggests, you know, they're always looking in these different forums and groups and stuff for white hats. Keep your eye on this guy because he was put into a very interesting position and he was the one who was able to sum up the JFK connection to the recent change in the special operations order. Um And this is a guy who has already proven himself to be very talented anti-terrorism. And he was actually an advisor to the Justice Department on those issues. Has an interesting history around that. Um, I'm going to read what he gave out at the DOD event. And I'm actually going to go into this. I'm going to read it straight out and skip over a couple of sections. All right. And by the way, we're going to be taking questions in the second half of the program. Make sure you ask them. Miss Olivia we
1: right. will
0: put those together. And, to take uh, it easy. I have to catch up. <laughs> How's the temperature out there?
1: Uh, look at, look at quite a few little trolls tonight, <laughs> but I'm handling it.
0: They don't realize that they have a five-star spam yeah. general going on. Okay. This is the announcer from the session. Good morning. Acting Secretary Miller and distinguished guests, we are gathered today for a signing ceremony to implement the reform outlined in Section 922, Fiscal Year uh, 2017 National Defense Authorization Act. For nearly four years, the Department of Defense has planned and prepared to implement this important legislation, not only strengthens the role of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations, Special Ops, or low-intensity conflict as a senior civilian for special operations within the department, but it also reinforces the partnership with the commander of the United States Special Operations Command. This is already uh, an interesting way to put this across. Ladies and gentlemen, we will have opening remarks from the Acting Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, Mr. Ezra Cohen, who we just showed you. Ladies and gentlemen... Mr. Secretary, this is the Acting Undersecretary Cohen Watnick. Mr. Secretary, on behalf of the men and women of the U.S. Special Operations, especially Army Special Ops, welcome home. We are honored that you have returned to your roots on this historic day on hallowed ground. Today, the Department of Defense has started the process of formalizing what we have long known the fundamental role of U.S. Special Operations in defense and foreign policy by elevating Special Operations forces to a level on par with military departments as authorized and directed by Congress. Remember, this is what Kennedy wanted to do. He wanted the special ops up and eliminate the clandestine role from the CIA. As we enact these reforms, we follow the vision of President John F. Kennedy. This is Kennedy signing the order here. Keep that picture in mind. As we enact these reforms, we follow the vision of President John F. Kennedy, who predicted the rise of special operations nearly 60 years ago. He foresaw, quote, and this is Kennedy, another type of war, new in its intensity, ancient in its origin, that would require a whole new kind of strategy, a wholly different kind of force. Forces which are too unconventional to be called conventional forces, which are growing in number and importance and significance. Very importantly, he saw them under the umbrella of the DOD and not the CIA. So he didn't want the CIA taking this role. He wanted it to go back to DOD, who's directly under the president. Okay. Remember, the president is the commander-in-chief, after all. President Kennedy gave these remarks at the opening of the nuclear age when the Pentagon was primarily organized to plan and direct large conventional operations against superpowers not special operations short of overt declared conflict. The global demand for special operation forces then and now has confirmed President Kennedy's foresight. And now under the leadership of President Trump, we are fully realizing President Kennedy's prescient view of special operations forces. It is fitting that we are again entering an era of greater power competition. Competition as we gather to affirm the importance of special operations community. Uh, and he goes on here further. Now, let's read what President Kennedy put out there, what they're referring to and what the memo is that he signed there. And remember, this is June of 1961. The president put together National Security Action Memorandum 55, 56, and most crucially, 57. And I'm going to read each one here tonight. Um, And it's interesting, remember, the thing that I wanted to point out is that Truman had advised Kennedy. And remember, Truman had set up the CIA originally. So that background, the core of how it got to be what it was, Kennedy got that intel, that download of that intel directly. From the horse's mouth, he was the one who oversaw the whole process. Okay. Now this is the actual copy of the memorandum which you can get at the JFK Library. June 28, 1961 is when it was enacted and I have the story about what happened uh, when this actually, this memo made it over to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and he bypassed the CIA, he bypassed the Secretary of State, he bypassed everyone. He went directly to the Joint Chiefs with it. The President has approved the attached recommendation. The special group, 5412 Committee, will perform the functions assigned in the recommendation of the Strategic Resources Group. They call them SRG. This is National Security Action Memorandum number 57 that they're referring to here. Um, And 57 rests on 55 and 56, so I'm going to read a couple of key points from 55 and 56 and then read 57. Okay, here's what Kennedy had to say, June 28, 1961. Uh, And this is for National Security Action Memorandum 55. It goes to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In relations to the Joint Chiefs of Staff to the President in Cold War operations. I wish to inform the Joint Chiefs of Staff as follows regards my views of their relations to me in Cold War operations I regard the Joint Chiefs of Staff as my principal military advisor responsible for both initiating advice to me and for responding to requests for service I respect their advice and I expect their advice to come to me direct and unfiltered no CIA Uh, He doesn't say new CIA, but the direct and unfiltered. The Joint Chiefs of Staff have a responsibility for the defense of the nation in the Cold War, similar to that which they have in conventional hostilities. Now, this is huge because um, in conventional hostilities, the Joint Chiefs and the Department of Defense defend the homeland, right? They defend the United States of America from any threats. And when we're not at war, you have the CIA doing all this clandestine activity. They're overthrowing Guatemala. They're overthrowing Iran. So he's saying, look, in fact, we are engaged in all of these different scenarios. But you are going to act as if we're in World War II, basically. There's no CIA. You guys are in charge. So he's moving the whole thing back to them. The Joint Chiefs of Staff have a responsibility for the defense of the nation in the Cold War similar to that which they have in conventional hostilities. They should know the military and paramilitary forces and resources available to the Department of Defense, verify their readiness, report on their adequacy, and make appropriate recommendations for their expansion and improvement. Okay, so 55 tells them you're going to be taking this role even though this is a cold war, and we're not in World War II hot war. Um, now, the National Security Action Memorandum 55—that's the actual memorandum there, and it is available, as I said. Uh, in 56, they outline where the resources and the authority lies, and I'll just say one thing from 56. Okay, National Security Action Memorandum 56, just before 57. On June 28, 1961, you requested the Secretary of Defense in coordination with the Department of State and Central Intelligence Agency to make an estimate of paramilitary requirements and recommendation, ways and means to meet these requirements in accordance with National Security Action Memorandum number 56. The preparation of this report has been the responsibility of the Department of Defense in collaboration with Department of State and Central Intelligence Agency. The background. The definition of paramilitary forces used for this report is paramilitary forces that are forces existing alongside the armed forces in our professedly non-military, but formed on an underlying military pattern as a potential auxiliary or diversionary military organization. So the intelligence is gathered by the CIA. The special ops are the paramilitary forces who aren't doing, you know, they're not coming in with U.S. Army helicopters. They're not coming in identifying themselves. They're doing clandestine missions, but they're not, the CIA is not allowed to do paramilitary clandestine missions under this uh, 55, 56, and 57. Okay. This is NSAM 57. Responsibility for paramilitary operations. President Kennedy, June 28, 1961. For the purposes of this study, a paramilitary operation is considered to be one which, by its tactics and its requirements in military-type personnel, equipment, and training, approximates a conventional military operation, military operation, not a central intelligence clandestine operation. It may be undertaken in support of an existing government friendly to the U.S. or in support to rebel groups seeking to overthrow a government hostile to us. The U.S. may render assistance of such operations overtly, covertly, or by a combination of both methods. In size, these operations may vary from the infiltration of a squad of guerrillas to a military operation such as the Cuban invasion. The small operations will often fall completely within the normal capability of one agency. And then moving down. Any proposed paramilitary operations in the concept stage will be presented to the strategic resources group for initial consideration and approval as necessary by the president. Okay, so you can't go off and run your own Bay of Pigs operation. You have to run it through this group. Thereafter, the SRG, the strategic resources group, will assign primary responsibility for planning for interdepartmental coordination and for execution of the task force department or individual best qualified to carry forward the operation to success. This will indicate supporting responsibilities, not the main responsibility, supporting responsibility. Under this principle, the Department of Defense will normally receive responsibility for overt paramilitary operations. Where such an operation is to be wholly covert or disavowable, it may be assigned to CIA provided that it is within the normal capabilities of the agency. Any large paramilitary operation wholly or partly covert, which requires significant numbers of militarily trained personnel, amounts of military equipment which exceed normal CIA-controlled stocks and military experience of a kind and level peculiar to the armed services, is properly within the primary responsibility of the Department of Defense with CIA in a supporting role. So the the Department of Defense now takes over the paramilitary special operations wing. Instead, what happened was when this memo, this series of memos, went to the Joint Chiefs, they were all terrified because it was going to be an out, out war with the CIA, which already had control of all these different places like Central America, Iran, and all the rest. So... What Kennedy did is he put it out there and said, I want you, basically, to be the ones to take it over. Now, the person who carried the message was Colonel Fletcher Prouty. Now, Prouty was the intermediary for the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the liaison for the Pentagon and the CIA. Uh, He was also the person who, when Kennedy uh, was... Uh, trip was set up for Dallas. He was sent to Antarctica <laughs> uh, to make sure that he wouldn't set up security for the president in Dallas. And when he went and checked on it after the fact, he learned that they had told the unit commanders to stand down and not to uh, basically provide protection for President Kennedy in Dallas to make it easier for the assassins to get out. Uh, in the movie JFK, actually, he is Mr. X, and <laughs> um, Fletcher Prouty uh, gave that information to Garrison behind the scenes and uh, later came out and came public and said, yeah, I've been supplying Garrison with all this information. So much of the intel and the way of thinking about these things for Garrison uh, in understanding what the CIA was up to, the reason why it was so advanced beyond the fact that Garrison, who was the New Orleans DA who tried – the uh, JFK assassination case, the reason, you know, he had that great intellect that could grasp things, but he also had great intel sources like uh, Fletcher Prouty. So um, Prouty, now, something very interesting came up, which is he outlined what happened when he went and delivered this memo to the Joint Chiefs. And I want to read some pieces of that for you here. Remind you, you're watching the Dark Journalist program. We're deep, deep into it now. This is National Security Action Memorandum 57 that President Trump has activated as of yesterday. And that brings special ops directly to report to the office of the Secretary of Defense. The CIA gets cut out of the loop big time. And it seems to me like this is just the beginning. Um Okay, so he talks about how these memos came about and how he was having gone through the Bay of Pigs and realizing the CIA was trying to dog him into war and also seeing the CIA active and commanding everything in Vietnam and all these other places. He was saying, how do we get the power back for the military to do this stuff? So he went to General Beetle smith um, and Beetle smith had been the... Um, very early CIA director. And he knew from the creation of the CIA what the problem of the split was. And he gave him really clear advice about how to do this. And he said, all you have to do is have the CIA go back under their wing of intelligence. And then you can have the military run the paramilitary operations through special ops. And that's exactly what President Trump affirmed with the order. Okay. So, um, So Kennedy wrote this letter with the memo, and he sends it over. And then I'm going to go past the General Smith stuff and all that, even though it's very interesting. I'm just going to go to what he calls the Gold Room meeting. So the Gold Room is where the Joint Chiefs of Staff meet and get messages directly from the president that someone like Prouty will be uh, bringing over there. So this is proudly speaking now. He says, in the gold from the chairman and the service chiefs sit at a large table, along with ranking staff associates from each service. Rows of special staff members are seated behind them. As a result of the security classification pecking order, these extra staff officials leave after the briefing on their special subject has been given and before the next higher level of classification begins. So as the morning proceeds, both rooms thin out in the departure of these, with the departure of these officials. On that day in July 1961, when I briefed them on National Security Action Memorandum Number 55, I was the last briefing officer in the waiting room. And remember, 55 sits off the whole chain that culminates in 57, which is basically in the role of the CIA. Um, So the briefing began with the definition of Cold War operations. The simplest way to describe this is to say they are secret, clandestine operations sponsored by the highest authority of the U.S. government in support of an existing government friendly to the United States or in support of a rebel group seeking to overthrow a government hostile to us. So he goes into it and they look up at him and they say, "Okay, keep it short. What I don't know about it won't hurt me. That is, they're, they're afraid of the, the orders that Kennedy is going to give them because it might get them into hot water. I had learned that by short, he meant don't tell me anything. That was the Senate oversight in the 1950s. The Joint Chiefs of Staff felt much the same way and had limited their participation in both the planning and operations of such clandestine activities as much as possible. And I'm going to skip down a little bit again. As the discussion of National Security Action Memorandum 55 broadened, and remember, this is Colonel Prouty talking about giving these National Security Action Memorandums directly to the Joint Chiefs, General Lemnitzer and General Shu, both of whom had commanded military units in Okinawa that had provided extensive support for huge CIA operations that took place against the government of President Sukarno, of Indonesia in 1958, admitted they had not realized that that was what had been done, and the plane loads of weapons and other war material that had been furnished in response to a classified request made by the CIA against U.S. military, uh, oh, I'm sorry, CIA agents in U.S. military uniforms. I'm gonna read through that again. They admitted they had not realized that what was what had been done with the plane loads of weapons and other war material that had furnished, been furnished in response to a classified request made by the CIA agent in U.S. military uniform. It did not take long to see that these military men, all chiefs of their services, were not cold warriors and did not intend to be. When I read to them President Kennedy's statement from National Security Action Memorandum, number 55, and this is what I said. Quoting Kennedy, I regard the Joint Chiefs of Staff as my principal military advisors, responsible both for initiating advice to me and for responding to requests for advice. I expect their advice to come to me direct and unfiltered. No CIA. You could have heard a pin drop in the gold room. They had never been included in the special policy channel, which Alan Dulles had perfected over the past decade that ran from the National Security Council to the CIA for all clandestine operations. They did not want to be involved, but their services did get involved inevitably when the CIA operators approached them for support, such as weapons from the Army, airlift from the Air Force, or sea lift from the Navy. Despite this logistical support, they rarely, if ever, participated in the overall operational planning with the CIA, even for the enormous secret activities as the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, unless specifically so ordered. So Kennedy's coming in and he's saying, you know all those clandestine operations that the National Security Council is handling with the CIA? I want you to do all that stuff. And by the way, I want the CIA not to do it, and I want them to report to you that they're not doing it. And also, when I give you this information, I want advice from you unfiltered from anything that the CIA is saying. So this is a huge change of how business is done there since World War II. So they're looking around at each other and basically saying, this is an all-out war (laughs) because Kennedy is basically pulling all the power of the Central Intelligence Agency and he's giving us that authority. After I had briefed the chiefs on the key elements of that paramount presidential directive, National Security Action Memorandum 55, which, as I said, is the foundation of 57, There was little discussion. National Security Action Memorandum 56, evaluation of paramilitary requirements had been delivered to the Secretary of Defense by the White House. The third presidential directive, National Security Action Memorandum number 57. Responsibility for paramilitary operations was another strange document. As written, the primary thrust was contained in an enclosure That proposed the establishment of a strategic resources group for initial consideration of all paramilitary operations and approval as deemed necessary by the president. Despite this quite specific language defining the role of the new group, the covering letter contained a recommendation that, quote, the special group, the NSC 5412 Committee, will perform the functions assigned to the recommendations of the strategic resources group. This language was quite a surprise. The message of the directive is carried in the enclosure. And then he goes, I regard the Joint Chiefs of Staff as my principal military advisors, this is Kennedy saying it in the order, both for initiating advice to me and for responding for advice. By concluding that special group 5412 committee would perform the function of the new SRG National Security Action Memorandum 57 left the former Cold War operations system in place with a stroke of the McGeorge-Bundy pen. This circumscribed the role of the Strategic Resources Group. The super-secret secret 5412 committee that consisted of vice president, a high-level official from each of the state and defense, plus the director of Central Intelligence Agency, had been created early in the Eisenhower years and had become a compliant tool of the Dawes brothers. So, Uh, Then National Security Action Memorandum added, any large paramilitary operation wholly or partly covert, which requires significant numbers of military trained personnel, as we went over, is now going to come directly under the wing of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Defense Department. So this is the clash of things that were going down, but there's a loophole in there that the CIA took advantage of, which is they decided, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff looked at it. And they looked at Prouty and they said, basically, put that thing away because we're not going to engage in a full-scale war. And until, uh, you know, President Kennedy calls us out and he's laid all this out and he's laid the CIA out, we can't activate the National Security Action Memorandum 57. So this is where it has sat in limbo, even though it's a direct order from the president, all these years. 1963, President Kennedy gets assassinated, 57 years ago. 57 years later, President Trump uh, is, you know, by all accounts leading, has huge crowds, and then the media starts saying, oh, no, he's losing, and we have all these strange polls against him, and by the way, we're rolling out this candidate, and he won, and then all these questions about voter fraud come up. Then Trump looks across that abyss, and he fires the Department of Defense Director, Secretary of Defense. And he installs a new one. And that person then installs this Ezra Cohen as the Secretary, Undersecretary for Intelligence for Defense. They activate the order. This is the first time the order got activated because when Kennedy did it, it never got activated through the Joint Chiefs because of this loophole of the CIA being part of the 5412 group. Well, they seem to have solved that problem. And this is where we are with it. Uh, it's a huge earthquake to look at Kennedy's original order trying to circumvent the powers that Central Intelligence Agency had created for themselves. They didn't have the authorization. The problem is the um, in the development of the CIA, they had just come out of World War II, and they were trying to also protect the... The fact that they had a nuclear weapon, but nobody else in the world did. So there's the, that's the reason we've never seen the CIA's charter, this is something that Professor Scott has pointed out to me. We as American citizens never get to see that charter. Ultimately, what it means is that they have some loophole in there for anything that they do that they can basically do anything. And this is the problem inside the power structure in dealing with the Central Intelligence Agency, whether they're rigging elections whether they're doing illegal things overseas, whether they're propagandizing American citizens, we have this problem over and over again. Uh, Or whether they get into the business of creating a UFO threat. You know, they, over and over again, this conduit of the powers of the deep state through the Central Intelligence Agency. So um, what you have to look at when you see Trump and the things that he was working on for the America First group, we're looking at a situation where that group had not been in power for a long time because basically you have to go back almost to the 50s in eisenhower to find that national association the very america first aspects you might say in some ways the reagan administration had some of them but the reagan administration was um also hobbled by the presence of the Bushes. And so it it never got, you know, in many ways it gave up too many of its rights, but it never sold out to the point that Clinton did with NAFTA and GATT, for example, making China the supreme ruler of trade and uh, sending all of our factories over there. So Trump, in representing that group, he goes and he faces off against China and he gets a much better deal for America. And then what happens all of a sudden, aside from all these efforts to remove him as an agent of Russia and <laughs> all this nonsense, um, oddly enough, the the COVID virus and all that stuff, directly out of a Chinese lab, which, by the way, has a huge affiliation with Dr. Anthony Fauci in Wuhan, um, those types of things and that connecting the dots on that picture, bringing it down to this moment just yesterday when the Undersecretary of Intelligence and the Acting Secretary of Defense come forward and offer this up and say, look, we're activating National Security Action Memorandum 57, and now it's only two days before the Kennedy 57th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. I mean, it is remarkable when you think about the implications of what has taken place, and that the Defense Secretary got removed after the election is huge. Uh, but we also saw that the cyber terrorism, uh director, he also got removed, and all those other people that were around Esper got removed. So it's a gigantic shakeup. And now we have, while this election interim is going on, we've got Ezra Cohen and we've got Christopher Miller. Those are the heavies at the Defense Department right now. And what was their choice with Trump? They decided, what do we have that's on the books that we can move forward because, you know, in that interim period before the new administration, whether it's the second Trump administration or Biden, you're not supposed to do a whole lot. You're not supposed to change the the framework. You're supposed to have it continue. So what they decided was the thing we want to do is already there. It's in the Kennedy document. It was just never executed. And that's how we got it. Everyone, you're watching The Dark Journalist Show. Wow, this is really... (laughs) We're going deep on National Security Action Memorandum 57. This is not um, something that can't be confirmed or needs to be speculated about. The document exists, they used the power to execute it, and they invoked President Kennedy when they did it. Um, and they did it just before the assassination uh, anniversary, which is 57 years. Remarkable when you think about
1: it. Uh, Bruce Ross Morgan is in chat, and he is asking: uh, "Rumor has it that the NSA is working with Trump. Is this possible?"
0: Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the NSA had a turf war with the CIA, which is where you got all that stuff about Snowden and all the rest. And I think that Trump has looked out over the CIA and the NSA, and he's figured, which one of these groups can I work with? And I think. When he got Haspel, he thought that he he had something going on there that he could um, kind of work with. But as it turned out, she's checked out on him quite a bit, and I think that she's probably the the next shakeup here that we're looking at. Um, I do feel like there are forces in the NSA that still feel that the CIA has overstepped their bounds. The problem is. The NSA has overstepped their bounds by recording everybody's phone calls and emails uh, for that huge center in Bluffdale. So we're looking at a lot, a lot of uh, issues here in relation to this. But yes, it's possible for sure. I mean, it's funny, you know. There's so much, so many things that people think about in relation to. Um, are there white hats out there fighting the good fight? There are, and the, but the problem is that it's hard to get intel on who the, the right players are. I can tell you this on a government level. When you see governors or presidential candidates talking about mask mandates or lockdowns for cities based on the you know medical hysteria that they're pushing, which isn't backed very well by science, then you know that those people are not for freedom. But the people like Governor DeSantis in Florida, for example, who says, I'm not going to lock my state down and I'm not going to do forced... Um, You know, any kind of forced injections are not going to happen in this state. That's a freedom state. That's what all of America should be about. That's based on the Constitution. When you see the same thing with the South Dakota, uh, you know, who's getting all this flack in the media, the media is not an American entity. It is an entity that's pretty much trying to undermine and overthrow America and make it part of a larger empire. So, you know, we we have to remember this when we're dealing with it.
1: They're owned by oligarchs, right? (laughs) Who play golf together.
0: This is not a public service uh, organization, the media. They're not doing this because they're, they're, to give you the truth, they're for-profit companies who sell them services to the highest bidders. And they do their work on, mostly on behalf of the war machine, you Mm -hmm. know, whether it's in this country or other countries. So, we saw that their biggest disappointment in the 2016 election was Trump and his populism got in. And so the whole let's have war with Russia thing <laughs> wasn't going to fly. All right. What else you got?
1: Um, do you, do you have, have those pictures of Trump with his yeah. You, are you going to present those? Oh, oh no, no. I
0: did a big run oh, of that in my Twitter okay. feed. Okay. They are fascinating. Uh, um, oh, so If you too go, bad. If you go, no, no, it's mm-hmm. good, actually, because if you go to twitter.com forward slash darkjournalist, I put a series together there of pictures that they're using in the media, and they keep showing the president from behind. So they show his back, and sometimes they show, like, arrows. You know, mm. it, it, it's very, it looks like an assassination. It sketch. really does,
1: as if that's uh, a bullet. Yes, trajectory. trajectory, No question about it. Mm -hmm.
0: Everyone, you're watching the Dark Journalist program. We are on X election episode. This is going deep now. Trump activates JFK National Security Action Memorandum 57 built on uh, NSAM 55 and 56. We're going to be taking your questions in the second uh, part of the program. I want to um, remind you to go to darkjournalist.com and sign up for a newsletter there. Uh, That keeps us in touch you know we've been seeing insane and we we've, we've been pointing this out for <laughs> months now but the incredible carnage of mm-hmm. these social media companies just deplatforming anyone who says anything that doesn't fit in with the and right or left it doesn't matter if you're on the right and uh, you know they got a lot of your conservative commentators off and just uh, got rid of them and if you're on the left you know they took So many of those people, Glenn Greenwald or um, any of these different, Dan Dix, you know, who does all those uh, programs in Canada, they just get rid of them. And uh, so that could very easily happen. The best way for us to stay in touch is to have that uh, back and forth directly through the newsletter. And it's a free newsletter. You get it once a week. There's very little marketing or anything else in there. It just lets you know what incredible Uh, events and shows and top guests we have coming up for you. In the last month, we've had Dr. Joseph Farrell. Uh, I see Dr. Farrell in the chat. Mm -hmm. Joseph, it's great to see you. Um, Professor Peter Dale Scott, Russell Targ, who directed the remote viewing program. Um, They're all different pieces. Catherine Austin Fitz, the former HUD secretary, who's been on the program since the very beginning. I mean, the, these are the people that you want to be hearing from. So make sure that you are signed up. Take the time to go to darkjournalist.com and uh, sign up for that. While you're there, you can get behind the show. Uh, we've made it very easy to become a member. Uh, I think, if anything, I mean, it's it's basically like uh, money you won't miss because uh, we don't we don't make it expensive at all. But I do think it's important, uh, and we do appreciate all the support uh, from our subscribers. Yes, Ms. Olivia. Uh,
1: now, John had a great question. Do you think that Trump knows he's a target?
0: Oh, yeah. He has his own security force, mm-hmm. which he operates around the Secret Service. And uh, But, you know, it's also interesting because I think he's been a target his whole presidency, but I think that it would have been very obvious to get rid of him in that fashion. So they try to hamstring him long enough. And um, there's a lot of questions about the level of fraud that they used this time and why they didn't use it last time.
1: Mm. And
0: I want to answer that because in 2016, there's a theory about this that Catherine Austin Fitz has, which I believe, which is that Rudy Giuliani, through his connections in the NYPD, who had Anthony Weiner's laptop, that there were things that were completely compromising either personally or internationally with Hillary Clinton in that the deal was struck that if you don't throw the voter fraud switch, we won't dump the laptop on the public. And I think behind the scenes, um, it makes sense that that kind of a deal was made. The other thing is that the force of the Trump populism breaking through at that point was just overwhelming. And uh, I think on some level they just stood down. Um, However, They figured, okay, we were boxed in, but now uh, people like Brennan and all these other people on the CIA side decided, we'll really trip Trump up, you know, we'll make him guilty of this crime with Ukraine and we'll make him guilty, we'll make him a Russian spy. You know, remember the Steele dossier and he was supposed to have, (laughs) they were supposed to have all this compromising video in Russia and that's why. Uh, Putin could pull Trump's strings. Remember the whole fantasy? And they call Alex Jones a conspiracy theorist, mm. right? <laughs> they had Maddow and all of the meet the press people and the real, like the worst. Um, it just had no substance. And what's amazing is people who were Democrats, and I have pointed them out before, like Taibbi and Greenwald, they took a look at this and they were like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. And they understood where it was coming from. You know, uh, one of them, I think it was Greenwald who said, this is going to end with Wolf Blitzer on top of the Statue of Liberty with like a plunger (laughs) for Marxism. You know, it it got so weird. Those people are so bought out that um, it doesn't matter what political stripe you are. That's embarrassing. You know,
1: they are crazy.
0: They're I know, it's so crazy.
1: interesting that yeah. we're called crazy, right? <laughs> uh, you know, but they are nuts. Absolutely. And you have to wonder why. What are they? What is driving them crazy? Were, were they crazy to begin with? I mean, they've gotten crazier and crazier and crazier.
0: Yes, they have. Well, it's interesting, too. If you look, you know, before, when they would deny things, like when the Kennedy anniversary would come up, they would say, oh, Lee Harvey Oswald was <laughs> a lone assassin mm-hmm. who was someone who wanted attention because he was a loser in life and he got his opportunity when when Kennedy went by his window. It was ridiculous. First of all, for the record, Lee Harvey Oswald got his job at the Texas School Book Depository six weeks before Kennedy happened to drive by there. No one knew, except people in the Secret Service and some people in the planning department, that Kennedy was going to drive by that window. What are the odds, according to their story, that you know, this guy who's supposedly left wing radical uh, commie just happens to get his job in this place where Kennedy goes by. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, it's just absurd. The other thing is that there were so many connections with Oswald and the CIA and right wing operators like Guy Bannister um, that that whole thing about him being a leftist, the, he was just undercover, basically. I mean, it's stupid, it's so easy to peel that back and they've kept this joke going and it, it brought it all the way from that low which was stonewall 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 and then they bring it to anderson cooper on election night saying president trump is like a an obese turtle on his back flailing oh that's intelligent commentary anderson <laughs> where'd you get that so they pay you what 25 million dollars a year to sit there and sp- about that? That's good analysis. It's weird, isn't it? Uh, And guys like Cooper, of course, were recruited directly out of college for the CIA.
1: Right. How many CIA agents are there in the media?
0: Well, this is an interesting question. We used to have a better read on it. We know that, see, they used to be able to crack these things open. When they had the church committee, when they had those investigations in the late 1970s, the CIA admitted to having 400 paid assets in the media. How Back is, then. I mean, how big is the program now? Think about mm-hmm. post 9-11.
1: Yeah, I, or do you need to be a member of the CIA to even have a job there? I mean, particularly an anchor, for sure, you know, if yes. you're high up.
0: Yeah, well, think about the kind of gravitas that it gives you if you're locked in with the CIA in there. Um, the other thing is after 9 remember, every one time you would turn it on, it'd be like a CIA person <laughs> giving you what was going on. How do you trust that? I'm the CIA are professional liars. So... You know, this is the nature of the problem with the election and everything else that's going on. When you see all these former CIA officials, look at this guy, John Brennan. He wants to invoke the 25th Amendment. Well, if his story is true that Trump lost, then Trump he'd be rid of Trump on January 20th. So what's the problem?
1: What, are you yeah, what scared is the of, problem? What are you
0: afraid of, Johnny? Johnny, be good. Let's <laughs> go on. <laughs> I, it doesn't make any sense. So... Declassification?
1: Is that what he's afraid of? Well, the
0: declassification would show what he was up to in trying to oust Trump. Totally illegal activity. Uh, But it's it's more than just that. I mean, the declassification of the entire system. And he's supposed to be somebody who, you know, this is funny because a CIA person who is a contributor to MSNBC. right? I'm a CIA leader and I'm going to sit there, you know, and wave my flag on MSNBC. It's ridiculous. Um, All right. Now, are you ready for the really weird twist TKO that I mentioned at the beginning of the program? Are you ready, everyone? (laughs) Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Here's the interesting thing. Sidney Powell. With all this going on, you know, Sidney Powell has really made the strongest statements and is the real kind of core of the Trump legal team trying to take the election back by proving First of all, Dominion software fraud, because the company is locked in with this other company. And we've heard those rumors going on that are very interesting, that servers got seized in Europe and that it was, in fact, uh, American servers that were CIA servers that got seized by European authorities on behalf of the American defense establishment. Now... Um, There are things that are being confirmed about that. We don't know if it's directly related to the voting software. It may be. So we're keeping a very close eye on that. But in the context of the things that we hear being put out there by the Trump defense team, it sure is interesting considering they just activated National Security Action Memorandum 57. Now, let's go a little bit deeper with this. Does Sidney Powell have a connection to the JFK assassination investigation in any way? After all, you know, she is standing there in this deep position trying to get this back. And she I noticed that her law firm was in Texas. And I wondered, could it be that she has an association there? Well, watch this. <laughs> OK. First of all, I want to say this, and I I did flag her on the show. Uh, I tagged her on Twitter to let her know we were doing the show because I think that she got a really kind of bum rap from the media. And um, even when she was turning to people who are supposed to be supportive, like Tucker Carlson, she was again getting the shaft. Look, if what she says is true, then her life is in danger. So if anything all hands on deck should be protecting the interests of this, and she may be holding the keys to the entire voter fraud that we've been witnessing. In that case, her information and her personal safety are two of the main things that we should be paying attention to. Um, Powell, one of the things I pointed out about her was that she has overturned, and this is one of the great things about her background if you get into it, She's overturned over 70 cases at that federal or Supreme Court level of cases that were already decided in one direction, and she got them to flip back with her deep research. This is a major, powerful, heavy hitter, and uh, it is not someone who would lightly go out there and make claims about Dominion software that she couldn't prove. In 1980, she got involved in a case that was all about a major drug dealer, and the drug dealer had set up a hitman to get rid of the judge who was going to preside over his sentencing. Um, This case, all about Judge Wood slain there, um, there were so many different, strange connections to this case. I could do a whole X episode just on that. But the person that they figured out who had done this had been the hitman, was someone named Charles Harrison? Aha! Now Charles Harrison has a very interesting history for those who know the JFK assassination, because it was implicated that he was one of the tramps that they caught in the back of the uh, behind the grassy you knoll and behind the Texas Schoolbook Depository that was hanging out in these boxcars, not doing a whole lot, and were kind of well dressed uh, for tramps. He, uh, when he was caught, it was interesting. He said, I'm guilty, and I also was associated with the JFK assassination. I took part in it. Now, what's interesting is the drug dealer in question, his brother had tapes of Harrelson, and he said oh, look, um, Harrelson always said this. He often showed us where he was when the shooting took place and how he had participated with the team in being involved in this. Um, Harrelson himself was someone who they said was an organized crime figure, but he had actually worked for the CIA uh, doing contract-type jobs. An odd thing that I found out that I never knew in relation to Harrelson, which I think you'll all find fascinating, is that his wife... I mean, there's so many weird things about him. But his wife, her last name was Oswald. So her name was Diane Oswald. Um, Now, they had a child, and the child's name was Woody. (laughs) Woody Harrelson, the actor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, once in a while, you hear it ping-ponged around oh, well, Woody Harrelson's dad was involved in the JFK assassination, and they're like, oh, it's another crazy JFK theory. Uh, Except no. it's real! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as it turns out, Woody Harrelson's dad was a hitman. That's on the record. And they're doing a whole series about that. There's a podcast out there about, like, the son of a hitman, which is just getting into the life of Woody Harrelson dealing with his hitman dad, who's passed away in prison now. Um, he um, He has some very unusual pieces to the Kennedy assassination. I'm going to read a little bit of his background here. You're watching The Dark Journalist Show, everyone. This is the ex-election special, Trump Activates JFK National Security Action Memorandum, 57. In September 1980, Harrison surrendered to police after a six-hour standoff in which he was reportedly high on cocaine. During the standoff, he threatened suicide, stating that he had killed both Judge Wood and President John F. Kennedy. In a television interview after his arrest, Harrelson said, "At the time, at the same time, I said I'd killed the judge. I said I'd killed Kennedy." Um, now, the drug dealer's name that uh, Powell prosecuted—she prosecuted Harrelson and Chagra, um, Jameel Chagra—who was the real, like, incredible player between Las Vegas, Texas, Mexico in drug dealing. Both Harrelson and Joe Chagra were implicated in the assassination of the judge. Uh, Joe Chagra was the brother of Jamil Chagra. Um, and Chagra received a 10-year sentence. Jamil Chagra was acquitted of the murder when his brother Joe refused to testify against him. <laughs> you can imagine that. Chagra was represented by future mayor of Las Vegas, Oscar Goodman, then a public defender. In a plea bargain, Jamil Chagra admitted to his role in the murder of Judge Wood and to the attempted murder of U.S. attorney. Uh, Harrelson's wife, Joanne, was sentenced to consecutive terms. This is not the Diane Oswald, it's a future wife, and was sentenced to consecutive terms of 20 years total and multiple convictions. In 2003, Chagra recanted his previous statement, stating that someone other than Harrelson had shot Judge Wood. It's even stranger. Harrelson's son Woody then attempted to have his father's conviction overturned to con- secure a new trial, without success. Chagra died in July two thousand and eight. The prosecutor in the case, Sidney Powell, she prosecuted the hitman associated with the JFK assassination, and there is a shot of Woody and his dad, and they do actually have an uncanny resemblance. Uh, we can I throw in something yes. here?
1: Sunspun says, and Woody was a schoolmate of Mike Pence. Oh, yeah, right. right. Crazy. That
0: is wild. Uh, I do feel that maybe, you know, in looking at this, we've got something kind of remarkable in relation to Powell and the JFK assassination. But I want to go even deeper because this gets into some uh, ex-work that I've been doing. And, you know, we put out a documentary in the summer, and the documentary was called X-Protect, and it was all about the UFO file assassins. as well. There is a whole section to it about the Gemstone File, and instead I made the Gemstone File X-Series episode, and the Gemstone File is kind of like a WikiLeaks type release that came out by this person who knew so much about these various things involving Onassis, the mafia, the government, the JFK assassination, And had really poured that information through to a journalist who uh, was staying with uh, Mae Brussel, who's the really hardcore researcher of the 70s and 80s. And the name of the woman is Stephanie Caruana. This was her book that she put together. And the person who had put out the gemstone file information had kept it kind of a secret. But he decided after meeting her that he wanted to go on the record and he gave her all the different keys to it. Now, um, there is a section here which has to do with the JFK assassination that's in the gemstone file, which mentions Harrelson. And it also gets us into ex So I just want to take a moment to snapshot it. Uh, And here I have an original copy of the skeleton key to the gemstone file. And I'm happy that someone provided me with this. Okay. The hit on JFK was supposed to take place in true mafia style. The execution together with Diem, who was uh, in the head of Vietnam at the time, and Mu in Vietnam, Diem and Mu got theirs as scheduled. Onassis, who really shows up as a, Aristotle Onassis, a huge ringleader for Uh, kind of world assassination in the Gemstone file, and who eventually, of course, married Jackie Kennedy. Onassis had invited Jackie for a cruise on the Christina, um, where she was when JFK got tipped off, that Onassis planned to wipe him out. JFK called Jackie on the yacht from the White House, hysterical, get off that yacht if you have to swim and canceled his appearances at a football stadium in Chicago, where CIA mafia assassination teams were poised for the kill. Jackie stayed on board, descended to the gangplank for a few days later on Onassa's arm in Turkey uh, to impress the Turkish Bey Mustafa. Uh, in the United States, Madame New bitterly remarked, whatever has happened in Vietnam will see its counterpart in the United States. One of the assassination team. People, Thomas Valley, a double for Oswald, was picked up in Chicago with a rifle and quickly released by the police. This is fascinating because this information was not available at all. We've seen a lot of these things come through later. But this guy, Bruce McDonald, who put together the uh, gemstone file, he had incredible access to information. And then also, there's such wild things in here, too. But what he does say, and it gets us into one of the things and the people I covered, Robert Mayhew, who was in the JFK assassination, uh, I'm sorry, the the, uh, X-Protect Assassins documentary that I did and released in July. Um, Now, what's interesting about that is Mayhew was the CIA operative who was the right-hand man for um, Howard Hughes. Okay, I'm going to try to get right to the point on this. The JFK murder, Onassis Hughes' man, Robert Mayhew, reassigned the mafia CIA Castro assassination team to the murder of JFK, adding Eugene Brading. Keep the name in mind, Eugene Brading, a third mafia hitman from the Denver Mafia Small Dones family. Two months earlier, Brading, on parole after a series of crimes, applied for new driver's license, explaining to the California DMV that he was decided to change his name to Jim Brayden. Uh, Braden got his California parole officer's permission for two trips to Dallas in November on oil business, the first time, to look things over. And uh, he went there to meet the big oil man, H.L. Hunt. And, in fact, he was walking around Dealey Plaza and got picked up temporarily because they were like, what's this weird Braden guy who has two names and a strange mafia background? What is he doing just walking around here? Um, And then he talks a little bit about how Oswald was planted there by the CIA to take the fall, and so on. This is what we really want, though. Um, They needed backup men, as it turned out. So they decided that they would enlist our friend Charles Harrelson. Now, this is what they have to say about Harrelson in here. Uh, I want to say this about braiding as a weird aside. That braiding is also present at the RFK assassination. So you have this one hitman hanging around close by to both of these assassinations, who is a major tool of Bob Mayhew, who's a basically a CIA assassinations operator, worked for Howard Hughes. Okay. Um, so, they need timers and backup men and all the rest. So, um, when they say Eugene Brading, it's Jim Braden. They're both the same people, so let's not get mixed up. A triangulated ambush was supplied by Eugene Braden. Shooting from Kennedy's left from a small pagoda in Dealey Plaza across the street from the Grassy Knoll, Brading missed because of Roselli's and Fratiano's shots. That's another shooter had just hit Kennedy in the head from the right and the rear, nearly simultaneously. Braiding's shot hit the curb and ricocheted off. Brading was photographed on the scene, stuffing his gun under his coat. This is a classic picture. He wore a big leather hat band marked with large, conspicuous X's. Now, there's a picture of Brading in Dealey Plaza with this hat band, and the x-steganography that's being used there. I want you to take a good look at Eugene wow. Braden, Jim Braden. Now, why would he have uh, X's in his hat? Well, the gemstone file tells us why, and it also brings in this aspect of Harrelson. So let's keep going. The hatband was marked with large, conspicuous X's. Police had been instructed to let anyone with an X-marked hatband through the police lines. Some were told that they were Secret Service. So if you see a guy with an X, steganography a steganography hatband, let him through. After his shot, Brading ditched his gun with his backup man and walked up the street toward the Daltech building. Roger Craig, a deputy sheriff, rushed up to Brading, assuming he was Secret Service, and told him he had just seen a man come out of the book depository and jump into a station wagon wagon. Brading was uninterested. Brading walked into the Daltex building to make a phone call. There he was arrested by another deputy sheriff. He showed him his Jim Braden's driver's license and was quickly released without being booked. Okay, three men dressed as tramps picked up the spent shells from Dealey Plaza. One was Howard Hunt, and then they drifted over to an empty boxcar on the railway spur between the grassy mill area and waited. A Dallas police officer ordered two Dallas cops to go over to the boxcar and pick up the tramps. The three tramps paraded around Dealey Plaza. We've seen these pictures. I have some here, too. Um, In all, ten men were arrested immediately after the shooting. All were released soon after. None were booked. That's important. Um, And then he goes a little bit into Oswald here. Um, Let's see. So, um, basically, what they dive into is that one of the tramps that they had used was Harrelson, and that one of the reasons that they used him was because he was so good at this. Um, he He was young, and he was very good at being a backup auxiliary for all this. Now, here's what's odd. There's a person who's not often mentioned in relation to the JFK assassination, but who came out in 1991. And um, what he claimed that he did uh, was that he was working for the CIA as an intermediary for the CIA and the mafia, and he had given, his job was to go there and give credentials to these tramps. So he was supposed to give them their ID. Uh, and his name was Chauncey Holt. And I have to say that Holt's story is very unusual for a lot of reasons. But one of the things, let's see if I have Holt here. Oh, yeah, let's take a quick look at the scene here. Um, These are the tramps here who were grabbed right after the assassination. This is the tramp that Holt says, and also the gemstone file says, is Charles Harrelson. And he's right in the middle. Now, there's been a forensic expert who took on pictures of Harrelson and the tramp in the middle and said they were the same person. So um, it is, it's is—it's a very compelling thing. The story of the tramps is very odd, too, that they paraded them around and they weren't handcuffed and then they let them go almost overnight. This is Chauncey Halt. And he had a major background basically in and out of the intel services, and for working with mafia people all the way back to Meyer Lansky. So when he came out in 1991 with this story, uh, he, his daughter came out and basically said that uh, he had told her the whole thing and that he had always been incredibly trustworthy. His story is not so fantastic or out of the ordinary in this sense, but it's pretty compelling when you think about it. So here's just a quick bit of Chauncey Holt, everyone. You're watching the Dark Journalist Election X special, and we're going deep on Trump activating JFK National Security Action Memorandum 57. We found this connection now with Sidney Powell and her prosecution of Chagres, who was a major, Jamil Chagres, who was a major drug trafficker on a scale not seen. And she got her conviction, but she wound up convicting his hitman also who was Charles Harrelson. And Charles Harrelson now, and what he was doing there in Dean Plaza, becomes very interesting in the whole wave of this case. We're just going to take a quick look at what Holt has to say. <clears throat> this is Holt. At the time of the shooting, the moment the shots were fired, we knew something went awry. We didn't know why, but from the screaming and carrying on, we knew that there had been one hell of a bad incident. At the time, what went through our minds was, hey, we had gotten ourselves into something way over our heads. So I scooted under the train, went under to the other side of the car, and I encountered Charles Harrelson and Montoya, who was the other, one of the other tramps. We searched out the car, which was not too far from the engine. I climbed into it, closed the door, and sat there in silence while I monitored the radio and listened to what was going on. We were in the railway car 1231 to 1232, almost immediately. It's like a minute after the assassination. As soon as the shooting started and there was pandemonium and people were running all over the place, when actually we look back on it, we could have easily lost ourselves in all of this stuff. We could have gotten right up to the grassy knoll, thrown ourselves on the ground like everyone else was. Started screaming and that would have been the end of it. We were in the boxcar for a long time. Actually, we heard a lot of transmissions. I estimated that it was almost 2 o'clock, although my watch was still in Arizona time. I had a bad habit of not changing it. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to skip down a little bit. So a security officer, a police comes in. He asks who we were and what we were doing there. Just about this time while we were doing this, there was a lot of confusion, pandemonium. Actually, a lot of, I would term, jubilation on the part of the police officers there, especially FBI agent Gordon Shanklin, which led us to believe that our release was because of something that happened. Although they had said it on a number of occasions, someone else was arrested. They had caught someone in the deltics building. I heard someone say, we got one of them. But then the matter came in, and they had indicated that they had got the individual that had killed a cop in Oak Cliff. All at once, it seemed to me as if I was considered, even what I considered prematurely, they indicated they had the guy who had shot the president. And at the same time, the level of attention on us, they had some other people they had detained and looked like they were going to arrest, including Braden. Jim Braden was there. I didn't recognize him at first because he had a hat on with some kind of Texas style hat band on, and I didn't know him that well, if you know what I mean, but I knew that I recognized him once I got there. Once we got in there and these events came off, because they happened almost all at once, at the time we arrived there, then the attention shifted to Oswald. So they end up letting them go, including Harrelson. Now, a little addendum on this that there's a train of picture that shows someone walking by Harrelson. And the person walking by is, uh, according to Fletcher Prouty, is Ed Lansdale, who was his boss, who's the same one who sent him to go to Antarctica when Kennedy was going to be assassinated in Dallas so that he couldn't set up the arrangements. This is the picture of him walking past uh, Harrelson. We're just closing in there on Ed Lansdale. This, uh, and it's interesting because Proudy sent that a, around to a number of different people that he knew who had worked with him without mentioning, who do you think this is? And they were all like, oh, that's really strange. What on earth was Ed Lansdale doing there? And Ed Lansdale working for the CIA and the Air Force and basically uh, doing, you know, showing up in these different countries and throwing over the leader of Indonesia and all the rest. There he is in Dealey Plaza walking by Harrelson. And basically the conclusion that Proudy came to was that he was trying to calm him down say, like, don't worry, I know you're getting arrested, but this is going to work out okay. That's Lansdale there with Alan Dulles in this shot. That's Dulles, and that's Ed Lansdale. Um, Ed Lansdale's presence in Dealey Plaza is very unusual, but his presence right there with the Harrelson tramp, is very suspicious. Um, one of the people who had worked with Lansdale, their quote was, the haircut, the stoop, the twisted left hand, the large class ring, it's Lansdale. <laughs> Lieutenant General Victor Krulak. And Proudy was like, i bet my life on it too, that's him. But what was he doing there? This is the nature of the question, which is he's sort of overseeing the assassination, making sure all the the pieces work and calling off the dogs when the time comes. Everyone, you're watching The Dark Journalist Show. Here we are deep, deep, deep now into episode X election. And um, we've been looking at the Trump connection here, activating the National Security Action Memorandum 57. And Sidney Powell and her interesting... And I would say surprising connection with the JFK assassination investigation, and Harrelson just absolutely fascinating.
1: Uh, David Tremina, yes, dug up a little factoid. That's right. Ah, yes. um, not only was the mayor of Dallas in '63 the brother of Deputy CIA Director Charles Cabell, yes. but Cabell set up Project Grudge, which led directly to Project Blue Book. Wow! Oh yes! <laughs>
0: Excellent! Wow, that's a fantastic point. <laughs> Uh, what else you got? My camera's going crazy.
1: Um, oh, okay. So, let me ask you about... Okay, so Ed Kaufman wanted to know, is there any significance with Chauncey coming out the same year as Oliver Stone's movie?
0: I think it was in the zeitgeist, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, there were a lot of people who came forward. Look at Judy Baker, for example, um, who came out who had been associated with Oswald? It's quite remarkable.
1: Well, and Babushka Lady, right? I forget her name, <laughs> right? She came out because of that, right? Because of all of this. Yeah, story.
0: I think mm-hmm. it gave everyone the kind of, you know, it was sort of like um, it gave them permission. Mm-hmm. And there was a feeling, remember those congressional hearings are why the records were ordered in the first place. So let's remember that too. Um, oops. Have a little camera fun here. Hang on. Hang on, everyone. Yes, yes, yes. Keep going.
1: Okay. Um, I'm just
0: fixing my camera.
1: Okay. So I'm going to go back to um, Memo 57. A lot of people are having a hard time finding um, where you dug this up. It's somehow. If you can,
0: you can actually go to the JFK Library and mm-hmm. just look for National Security Action Memorandum 55, 56, and 57. They're all there. They're historical documents, so they're not likely to, um, you know, it's not the kind of thing you can fake. And they're on the record. They have been there, and Proudy and his work on it is particularly significant because he seems to understand it better.
1: James Clements wants to know, so exactly what does Memo 57 give Trump the ability to do?
0: It means that all of the special ops, clandestine operations, which require a small group to go in and achieve something for the United States um, in a paramilitary fashion, now have to report directly to the Secretary of Defense and that they will not go through bureaucratic channels to the Central Intelligence Agency to do those things.
1: And would that, how long would it take to implement that? Because you can't switch gears that quickly. So it's very late in Trump's presidency to do this.
0: (laughs) As JFK found out, he couldn't implement it at all. However, um, they were smart to know that the law existed, because to create an executive order to do that now would be a remarkable thing. You know, it would be like, oh, he's changing everything. He's changing the way we do business. Well, Trump was smart and his team was smart. And they said, you know, there's something out there that already does this. So let's use it. Everyone, why a Democrat?
1: <laughs> a beloved Democrat, well, which yes. I think is also really interesting. So,
0: hmm. I mean, there's so many different things when we look at this that what Trump is trying to really put over is that. I can take the power of the CIA. I have it. Within that memo is the power to do it. And so it, it might be an ultimate raise <laughs> uh, for the CIA. It might be the ultimate, you know, you guys aren't going to get the better of me. That's kind of the way I look at it, actually.
1: Yes. So, Philip Alexander, if the CIA is extra constitutional, what ensures that it must follow this memorandum? It's a good question.
0: Um, well, the truth is, here's the thing. I'm gonna go wide. There <laughs> we go. Yes. I'm sorry, I'm just adjusting mm-hmm. my picture here, getting that straight. Um, here's the thing: when we look at it, we've got an agency that runs around the world making up its own rules, staging its own election coups and various deals and crimes and has their own Air Force and has a staff and a budget of millions of dollars every year. That agency was the brainchild of coming out of World War II and it was only agreed to by Truman under certain conditions. And then what happened was it just grew and grew, and then they were able to do things. And so the military on their side was like, oh, if you can do this thing without us admitting that it was us, that's what paramilitary activity is all about. So if I have all these revolutionary wars going on, I can send you down there to Central America and I can have you influence these groups and you know do these different things to overturn an election so that we get our guy in and that the communists don't have a foothold. Now, they often use the communist excuse, just like, you know, the excuse to take over Cuba was, oh, since Castro is getting his support from the communist side, then we should be able to do this and we can use any means possible. So they thought tricking Kennedy into it because he was green, supposedly, they misjudged him. They thought, he'll do this because we have this kind of control on him. Well, it didn't work out so well because he didn't fall for it, but also it, it embarrassed the United States at the time. And one of the things you have to remember is when you go back there um, and really listen to the whistleblowers at the time, they were saying that there were people in the government who were naming different streets and different buildings after <laughs> themselves and their companies and stuff when mapping out Cuba. They thought it was a done deal. So they had Wow, you didn't know that. Yeah, and they had been promised by the it's CIA. The hubris. It is amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they've been promised this. So when the rug was pulled out from under them on that, they didn't realize these incredible profits and all the rest. And if you go further back, look when you when you watch this program, and I can tell you there's a huge Cuba connection to everything that's going on. But you know all about the hot zone which has to do with the fact that there are geopolitics around ancient ruins off cuba between bimini and cuba and yucatan so when we look at that uh we can see that a lot of these things start to make more sense which i think is crucial in our thinking so i will you know (laughs) i'm going to point this gentleman out here as we close up this section that is frank weisner and frank weisner was really what they modeled the CIA on. And when you think about this, it's fascinating, because Wisner had this training of, like, paramilitary stuff during World War II. So he was very off the hook, though, and he would do things like blow up trains and overthrow elections and blow up bridges and things like that, because it was war to him. But um, what happened at a certain point is he... In his group, they were the covert action group, and they were called the Office of Policy Coordination. They did all these things that the CIA does now, all that kind of overthrowing elections. The CIA initially was doing its duty of collecting information the same way the OSS did during World War II. But what happened was Truman was like, they're going to get us into a war, this OPC group. Hey, you, CIA, can you go in there and get them under control? And so the CIA tried to merge the activities of OPC. And what happened was the OPC people were so drunk on power and getting such weird results. And they were like, you know, we can conduct our own foreign policy, that they started to take over the regular civilian Central Intelligence Agency. That's the agency that we wound up getting. That's the one that Dulles headed up. And he started to make these deals with different countries and Wall Street interests, and that's where you get the whole idea of banana republics and all the rest. Because the whole idea of a banana republic is those fruit republics, whoever is favorable to us gets in there, and the person who's not favorable gets assassinated. That's what makes a banana republic. So um, when you're looking at these types of things, and we're, we're really kind of focusing in on how this situation happened, Then we really look and see that the CIA, the Angletons and those types of people, they had fought a war in World War II and they felt entitled to kind of arrange the world the way that they wanted it. The only problem is they didn't have any sense, they didn't have any ethical compass. Hmm. And they decided anything just like the deep state and how it grew was just their answer was power to everything. And at a certain point, you know, when you think of the Cuban Missile Crisis, that group would have easily exchanged nuclear weapons to get what they wanted. They were that crazy. This is the same people that we're dealing with. So when you think about Kennedy keeping a cool head and and working through that situation, giving the Soviets the chance to get out of it, uh, he stopped the first thermonuclear war. So it's a huge accomplishment. And then he's assassinated a year later. So... Who was he in the way of when you look deeply at this? It's the Central Intelligence Agency over and over again. Um, And none of the traditional models for the Kennedy assassination, you know, that the media offered ever made any sense. Once in a while, they would say, you know, they would always say, it's Oswald, it's Oswald, it's Oswald, which is always stupid. And nobody who did any research would ever believe that.
1: Certainly not him alone.
0: No, well, that's the interesting thing. Once in a while, they would suggest, well, maybe he had Russian help because he was a Rusky, you know. The only problem is that he, he wasn't. <laughs> he, was a, he was a double agent for the CIA. And um, so there's, there's reams and reams now of information about this. For the media to be at the point that it is, it's kind of looking at, you know, an old model, you know, like uh, a dying culture. And even the CIA incredible grab Of the election the deep state grab of the election which is this episodes called the deep state showdown this is really what we're talking about because for them to have that kind of audacity but it's still an old thing for them to do it's the same thing as grabbing Mossadegh in Iran in 1953 and you know it's funny I was thinking about Obama going over there and saying you know the CIA this is the president now at the time the CIA did take, overthrow Iran in 1953. They overthrew Mossadegh and installed their own guy, the Shah. And um, so we're thinking, you know, a lot of people were like, hey, that's good. You know, Obama admitted this thing about the CIA taking over. And then what does he do? He rolls into Libya after Bush made a promise. Hey, Libya, if you give us your chemical weapons, we'll be friends. And then instead, the United States, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama in a vicious fashion Make Libya a failed state, bomb the hell out of it, and set up a central bank, and basically steal their gold so um and now it's run by like weird war- warlords, and you know <laughs> uh, it, right, you think about it right uh Gaddafi, as weird as he was
1: mm-hmm.
0: he had, apparently the people had a fairly decent life, like they had pretty good health care, and you know, so this idea that Gaddafi became hot on a radar, they just wanted. So they wanted the profit of having their own version of what the Republicans had done with Iraq, you know, and they were like, we can do it faster and cheaper basically. So this is the kind of sick mentality, but, but that's Obama, you know, and I know a, an interesting uh, and a prominent doctor, uh, that I talked to about Obama. And it's, this is somebody who's a liberal Democrat. And she said, where is Obama? Why is he collecting fifty million dollars for a book? Why isn't he during this going into inner cities and like, you know, trying to create funds for those people who've lost jobs and people in minority communities? You know, who is this person? Like, what's going on here? And getting you know houses for twelve million dollars on Martha's Vineyard,
1: oceanfront.
0: Yeah. Think about that. You know, who was Obama? You know, his mother definitely worked for the CIA. She was in Indonesia. That's what she was doing there. And you know, what's weird. I did research on it and uh, she worked for the father of the first secretary, treasury secretary in the Obama administration. There were all these weird loops with that. So we get these people and I remember that, um, The CIA bragged, actually, that they had recruited Clinton out of college. So, you know, when you think about it, the CIA, is is, they have their hands all over these things. Over and over again, we run straight smack into the CIA. And really, you know, as Professor Scott would say, the CIA is the it's the it's a key element of the deep state. So you have all these aspects around it. But here where we're focusing in on what this agency has done, when you look at this election, when you talk about the Dominion software, it, this is what the CIA does to other countries, but they're doing it here. So this is the nature of the problem. The action on the Kennedy side with NSAM 57, is it's, it's like the real shot across the bow. It was pushing the CIA back into its role, and it got lost back there because, These Joint Chiefs of Staff had been under Dulles' whip for so long. And Trump, looking at what has just taken place, decided, I could activate this. And it's a remarkable, it's such a deft move. It really is. It's it's remarkable. And here we are right in the middle of it. Everyone, you're watching The Dark Journalist Show. We're deep now into the ex-election, deep state this is really the showdown and it all has to do with the activation of the national security action memorandum for president Kennedy in the summer of 1961. After seeing what the CIA was made of in terms of how they would openly lie to him, he was like, I'll have a better shot with the military. He ended up creating the DIA, which by the way, guys like Ezra Cohen come out of. So you get that thing that he was like, you know, I want intelligence, but I want it under, a military accountable wing because this thing this extra constitutional monster that you've created this there's no accountability they can do whatever the hell they want and they're not even responding to presidential requests so he saw the handwriting on the wall and he paid the ultimate price of course for taking them on and that's why we really have to honor president kennedy not only did he save the world from uh, this incredible nuclear conflagration. But he also took us into this position where we could, you know, to do what Trump did, activate the laws that he put on the books. Um, so that memo saved Trump a lot of trouble,
1: because by activating it, he didn't have to come out and say, I'm changing